Coming up, it's Counterculture with Marie Buskey. A look into the world of critical social justice, woke culture, and more on RCR. Reality Check Radio. People are struggling to have conversations and connect with others that they don't completely agree with on every topic. And I think that's probably the biggest problem that we need to try and solve is how after all this division and after all this separation, do we end up bringing people together again? And what does unity really look like? New Zealand faces some pretty big issues. First one is COVID in the aftermath. There's no getting away from that. Second is racial division. It's been ginned up and it's dangerous. Another issue that maybe people haven't got their head around yet is digital currency. What form does that take? Is it programmable? Will it be used to manipulate behaviour and patterns of behaviour? Those questions need to be asked and answered. How can you have fair, open, democratic government by people who are appointed? It's a ridiculous idea. And if that idea is taken to its zenith, then this country is in real trouble because democracy, one person, one vote, where every vote is of equal value, has got to be the foundation of a modern New Zealand. What's true, what's not true, how our kids are to be educated. And, you know, I have a great fear for the future. I think we know from history where this could end up. Welcome to Counterculture on Reality Check Radio. I am your host, Marie Buskey, and this is a place where we discuss the issues through a cultural lens and how ideologies are impacting our everyday lives. On this week's show, it's a triple treat. I kick things off with Bob McCroskery from Family First and the host of McBlog, and we have a quick catch-up about Pride Week in schools. Then I welcome Holly Lawford-Smith, Associate Professor of Philosophy from the University of Melbourne, and we talk about modern feminism and what it's like to speak at the Melbourne Speak Up for Women gathering with Posey Parker. I then round the morning's interviews with James Fishback, founder of Incubate Debate, and we will explore the pervasion of wokeness in competitive debate and why debating is so vital in our societal discourse. Marty Gibson, of course, will be along to round out our legacy media stories of the week with Media Matters, and I'll always finish things off with the woke word of the week. So it is a busy morning, but I do have time to sneak in some feedback here on RCR. Via text, hi Marie, I love your show and enjoy hearing your very informative guests. You have a great voice, thank you, and an excellent interviewing style. Thank you for all what you're doing for New Zealand. Hey, that's from Linda. Thanks, Linda. Another one from the text machine. The gender confusion is part of communism's takeover. It's a written tactic. It certainly is. A brilliant interview with Helen and John Doe on a topic that I have been most disturbed about because of the worrying impact that it's having on all of us and particularly our young children and teenagers. Thank you, Marie. That's from Pam, who's a grandmother. You are most welcome, Pam. There's still plenty of more feedback, and do keep it coming. 2057 is the number for that. Welcome back to Counterculture here on RCR with Marie. Well, it's Pride Week in schools, and Inside Out will be busy encouraging our students to get puffed up with pride. Look, I've got no issues with the LGB community. Many are feeling as alienated from this new pride as I am. What you need to know about pride, though, is that it all comes down to power and money. 
power over parents and what ideologies get taught to their children and when by using the vehicle of our schools to do it. Power over teachers by ensuring that they stay silent if they have concerns with threats over their registration if they don't toe the line. Money in the millions of dollars of government contracts to deliver ideological and gender programs into our schools, like Pride Week events. Money in the form of fundraising, bake sales, mufti that now can't be called mufti days, donations from some of New Zealand's largest retailers and supermarkets and much more. Power and money. Ironically, as the school strikes drag on, most high schoolers are out of the classroom two days this week. It appears industrial action outpuffs pride. There is also a good number of schools who are just making a cursory acknowledgement to the week's events, choosing to focus on their core business, teaching. Now, there's a radical idea, especially in a region where so much time has been forced away from the classroom by things such as cyclones and strike disruptions. Pride is focused where there is money and power. Larger schools, affluent communities where well-heeled students have an iPhone in every pocket and who can afford to get puffed up on all the rainbow plumage their parents' credit cards can buy and bask in the gloriousness of their virtue, testing out their new pronouns on unsuspecting family and friends. I know I sound like a broken down record, but ideologies like gender and trans ideology requires affluence to flourish. This isn't about people. This is about controlling people with power and money. How do I know this? Well, I can tell you no pronoun will be mourned in communities like Apodiki, where the principal has closed the college because of the inflamed tensions between its school community after the death of a gang leader. Dollars to bloody donuts, you won't see any puffed up pride flags flying in downtown Church Street, Apodiki. I just hope the commercialization of pride doesn't undo all the progress we've made with accepting those who are same-sex attracted. This is a real risk and one we should be acutely aware of. So this Pride Month and in schools this week, keep asking questions, have courageous conversations with other parents and offer alternatives to school leaders for those who wish to opt out of the faux pageantry that Pride entails. Get puffed up with parenthood this Pride. You've heard the words open, fair, both sides of the story. It's easy to say them, but practicing them often seems like a bridge too far. New Zealand, it's time for a reality check. Reality check. RCR, Reality Check Radio. Rational discussion, common sense, and open debate for real. With me, Paul Brennan. You know, you just can't make this stuff up. You couldn't write the script. Veteran broadcaster Peter Williams. Where is the evidence they actually make a difference? It turns out that was a very fair question to ask. Taking on the mainstream, Chantel Baker. Mainstream media, as usual, in their little perch. The man who cares so much and whose background is for real, Rodney Hyde. The doctors don't believe them. They can't get ACC. They can't work. They're told it's all in their head. Along with a raft of contributors to inform, entertain and bring the truth back to New Zealand media. It's time for a reality check, all right. RCR, Reality Check Radio at www.realitycheck.radio. We've arrived. 
You're with Reality Check Radio. I'm Marie here on Counterculture, and Pride Week couldn't go past without discussing this issue with one of the great commentators we have here in New Zealand, Bob McCroskery from Family First. Good morning. Hi, Marie. Good to be with you. Good to be with you, and welcome to Counterculture for the first time. Yeah, Pride Week this week. I have nothing against pride, but I do have a lot of issue with this curriculum culture creep that seems to be going on. I don't think school is any place for this. What about you? No, I think people have an attitude of live and let live. Uh, We were always told when this first um, sort of started, when legislation around civil unions, it was just about the right to, um, you know, make wills as you wish, to uh, visit hospitals, to have a relationship recognised. But now what it's become is bracket creep to the point where we're putting drag queens in public libraries and we're teaching kids that they have the choice of 112 genders and over 200 sexualities. And then we wonder why our kids are getting very stressed because they're not sure whether they're a a boy or a girl or something else or in between. And part of them wants to identify as one of these alternative sexualities because then you become part of a minority group and you get all this favourable status and it's it's very boring and uh, you almost get bullied for uh, being a heterosexual uh, young person who just wants to actually get on with learning and eating what they've got for lunch and playing with their friends. We're creating this really hostile environment where uh, it's the indoctrination of groups like Inside Out and Rainbow Youth that are funded by the government to push this gender and sexuality in it, and it's extreme. Even for adults, it's extreme. And now we've got to celebrate a week of it in schools. It's like a genderized tribalism, really, isn't it? Gosh, it's hard enough as it is even for high schoolers, but the offerings that they have for both primary schoolers and intermediate children that really twist my neck, as I have to say, Things like libraries having titles that are rainbow approved and introducing ideas to our youngest New Zealanders that I believe should remain with the parents to introduce. Hmm. Yeah, I think that's where the concern is that this is really a family issue, parental issue, and and what most of these programs fail to do is take into account the values of the families and maybe even faith beliefs as well. Interestingly enough, I've just recently put out a McBlog where I've highlighted the teachings of the Muslim faith and what they say about gender ideology. Now, the media will never talk about that for interestingly reasons. The fact of the matter is that most faiths have a similar approach to understanding gender as being binary. You can't just choose your gender, that sex and gender are bound together. But what we're doing is we're going into schools and we're integrating it into virtually every subject. So I think in the old days it was, you'd have the sex education class and it was kind of separate from the main curriculum. But what they've done now is they're integrating it not into these separate classes. It's now in subjects like maths. I don't know uh, if you can figure out how that works. Perhaps one plus one doesn't equal two, it equals three. And in geography and in history, the Me Too movement, and it's in English and, of course, uh, preferred pronouns. It's an onslaught to young children who really we just we're polluting their minds and we're sexualizing them at a uh, at a young age that um, they just can't cope with, and then we wonder why they get stressed. And now we've got a whole week related to it. The good news, Marie, is that most schools don't want to borrow this and will be ignoring it. I have to say, my sons are both at a Catholic boys' school, and it is pretty much cursory at best there. And speaking to their friends who are at different schools, they're saying much the same. But then there are other schools. I find I think the, the larger state coeds this tends to perpetrate, and especially if there is a teacher or teachers or faculty there that are very much steeped in this ideology. I think that's where we're seeing it. 
What are some of the things that parents can do? I know some of the activities that Inside Out are recommending often have a fiscal basis there. So a bake sale to raise money, a Mufti Day, which you call it something else now because Mufti is now no longer allowed, day to raise money. I would have thought that they had enough money, Bob. Why did they oh, need more money? They're getting very good government funding. I mean, they're getting up close to $2 million, um, from various sources, governmental and local governmental sources. And, yeah, they have this out on the shelves, the LGBT Library Books and School Day. They have the National Coming Out Day, Transgender Day of Remembrance Day, Pink Shirt Day, which, of course, is a fundraiser. Most people don't realise, but a lot of the fundraising goes to Inside Out to push this gender ideology. It is based around them getting funding so that they can get into more schools. There's stickers. There is the library books, as you alluded to. There's also the worksheets and lesson plans and activity ideas. For parents, we just encourage them firstly to politely and respectfully contact their school and just say, are you celebrating this? And if so, how? Is it compulsory? Will my child be bullied if they're not part of it and don't conform to certain things? To be honest, well, homeschooling is sounding more and more attractive by the day, but we we just encourage parents that if they're not happy, then they have the right to keep their children at home or ask the school to give them another activity separate from the uh, Pride Day activity. These books that they're recommending for children, I mean, one they recommend that they want kids to read is called George, which is when people look at George, they think they see a boy, but she knows she's not a boy. She knows she's a girl. So there's this whole book about George. There's one entitled Ask Me About Polyamory. If your relationship or your gender are unconventional, you'll find useful advice and plenty of laughs. Sorry, that's a book about polyamory that they're wanting to introduce into school children. Yeah. I mean, that's out and out kink. Yeah. And we've got Antango Makes Three, which is about uh, the penguins' house at the Central Park Zoo. Two two penguins named Roy and Silo were a little bit different, uh, but their desire for a family was the same. And with the help of a kindly zookeeper, they get the chance to welcome a baby penguin of their very own. Uh, And there's I Am Jazz, which, of course, is that very sad story of Jazz Jennings changed sex uh, at a very young age and became the kind of example of how good it was. But actually, it's been shown to be just how harmful it can be. So, And there's video resources. So parents need to contact their school. And if they have any concerns, they just need to keep their children at home. They have legal rights. And and there's a parent guide on our website, familyfirst.nz, where they can find out what the law says and what their rights are. My advice to parents is you can't hope for the best any longer. Hoping for the best is, isn't it an option. You, you just don't want to leave the door open to groups like Inside Out and Rainbow Youth coming in and, and family planning and polluting your child's mind. One of the things I've been advocating for the last few weeks is uh, start some courageous conversations with other parents. You're not alone out there no. having concerns and don't be afraid to ask questions. Ask questions to your school, ask questions with your kids, have those really open conversations. I think they may surprise you that mm. they are often going along to get along. And if they know that they've got your support, I think that will help them uh, make decisions for themselves at school too and let's face it i think uh, a number i saw recently is some, it's less than half of our children are attending school regularly and they're wondering mm-hmm. why yeah and i think it's important uh, marie to point out that it's it's not specifically anti lgbt it's anti 
uh, sexualization and gender confusion of young vulnerable children at an age where they just can't process this type of information and it's part of the reason that we have a rating system for movies and for books and for things in life because we understand the moral innocence of a child even if it was a heterosexual kink you know, for example, some there was a school up north that put out a sheet which explained the five different types of sex, oral, anal, uh, object sex, uh, uh, you know, and, and it was explicit. Once again, totally age inappropriate, morally polluting our children, and schools need to understand that they're there to do the reading, writing, and arithmetic, mm. and some of these moral issues, especially around sexuality, uh, need to be left to families. We should be empowering families and parents to be involved in this process, as many of us are, but we're being undermined by what's happening at schools. I'll tell you what, it makes me yearn for the condom on the banana and the, you know, six form. Well, that was sex, very simple, se- wasn't it? Sex ed class. <laughs> <laughs> I'd feel vastly more comfortable about that these days. Well, at least it was biologically re- uh, related. And I mean, that's one good thing. True. I mean, now they've got stickers that they're handing out to celebrate transgender, non-binary, gay, lesbian, bisexual, pansexual, asexual, aromantic. And it's based around the puffed up plumage of the native kereru. That's what oh. the stickers are based on. I saw that. And the other side of that, too, is the name that they uh, called it, and I don't have it at hand, was... Hoho Kereru. Hoho Kereru. It's a completely made-up name. I mean, it's it's a phrase that does not exist. They have made it up. Any fluent Tereo speaker would go, what's that? It says, Poho Kereru cannot be directly translated in inspired English. However, it is often adapted as full of pride or puffed up with pride. So apparently a puffed up Kereru is a symbol of gender confusion and Mm. radical sexuality. Often described by whom? I mean, they just, Mm. anyway, it drives me mad. Hey, look, Bob, again, your information if people want to find out some resources from Family First. Yeah, familyfirst.nz. And I think if people are listening and think, oh, look, surely things can't be that bad and they're not really polluting our kids' minds, I would encourage you just to go to sexeducation.nz sexeducation.nz and if after reading our eight-page fact sheet you're not totally convinced that some schools have gone bonkers and the curriculum is dangerous and harmful to kids then maybe check that you've got a pulse on that note hey thank you very much for your time this has been bob mccrossgree from family first don't disappear more interviews more music right here on counterculture with reality check radio thanks for tuning in to rcr reality check radio If you like what you're listening to, or even if you don't agree with what you're listening to, then get in touch with us now. You can text us with your message to 2057, that's 2057. Or if you'd rather email us, you can at inbox at realitycheck.radio. We would love to hear from you, so get in touch with us now. You're listening to Counterculture on RCR. This is Counterculture on Reality Check Radio. I am Marie and I am pleased to be talking to philosopher, Associate Professor of Political Philosophy at the University of Melbourne. Good morning to Holly Lawford-Smith. How are you? Hi, um, I am good today. Excellent. Now tell us a little bit more about you, but firstly, we do have a qualifying question. What is a woman? Mm, qualifying question. Difficult. Uh, I hope I get it right. A woman is an adult human female. Excellent. I think we need Did to I send pass? 
You did pass. You did pass. <laughs> Our Prime Minister, as you know, didn't pass. Uh, now, a little bit about you when I was looking up. You are actually a Kiwi. I'm a Kiwi. Yep. I grew yeah. up in Taupo. You did something that many New Zealand women were unable to do, and you achieved the ability that you were able to stand up and speak at the Speak Up for Women rally in Melbourne with Kelly Jane Keane. Tell us about that. Yeah, it's amazing because watching what happened in Auckland, it did make me retrospectively really grateful that we were able to have our event. And it was quite shocking, actually, because I think a lot of Melbourne women felt like that. We were just watching the live stream and sort of, like, really distressed, actually, (laughs) because it's not only, like, upsetting to see that New Zealand women weren't able to even speak on this topic but you can also relate to it so much right because you were in that exact context a week ago or two weeks ago whatever it was and so you can sort of get the sense of all that contempt and hatred being targeted at you personally like that that's us like we are this kind of gender critical movement all around the world and so the way that any of these women are treated anywhere, actually, Glasgow, Birmingham, wherever, it's 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 all of us, right? So you really you feel that a lot. The Melbourne event was somewhat stressful in the sense that, like, there was a big red flag socialist, trans activist, Antifa protest. The police did have to really kind of hold them back, and that felt stressful. I, I remember constantly sort of looking back over my shoulder, checking that the police line was still holding and kind of sort of vaguely worrying what happens if that line breaks, what's their plan or what do they want, like how at risk are we physically. But, you know, when you're not doing that, casting your eyes backwards, it was actually really cool. Like it was so nice to have Kelly J there and she's so charismatic and and strong and I think everyone felt really happy to sort of be together and be doing something public and visible I found it surprisingly fun to speak like I thought maybe I'd be nervous or something but I I almost a little bit became like a show-off like <laughs> like enjoying the crowd or something. so yeah I don't know I've got quite fond memories of the day in a way it was more the aftermath that was an absolute shit show yeah well you it's funny how you mentioned all of those ones there behind the police line now in this yeah. country we didn't hear anything about those but according to our media it was awash with nazis and white supremacists oh man the media reporting on what happened in melbourne was just the most dishonest despicable insane thing i've probably ever seen like firsthand because, of course, when the media lies about other people, you don't know it's a lie, right? So mm. you really it's really only revealed to you the depths of the dishonesty and the propaganda when you were there and you saw what happened. And then you see it. You see the headline presenting feminists using the word anti-trans. You see them claiming phrases like stood arm in arm with Nazis or Nazis came to support the, you know, the anti-transfer, like all of this language, so misleading and just so descriptively false and obvious to find out that it's false. Like there was independent media there and you can just go and watch their live stream. No, even though almost like so many newspapers showed photos of the neo-Nazis and they were always by themselves. Isn't that suspicious? that they were just by themselves, if they were at a feminist protest, shouldn't they have been in the crowd supporting the feminists? Like, what 
but yeah, somehow no one was suspicious about that. No one really asked questions. So for me, that revealed a really shocking level of misogyny in Victoria, which is really a state that kind of prides itself on being super progressive. I mean, this was just people gleeful about accepting this narrative of like these terrible, bigoted, fascist women <laughs> uh, who, who would dare to say no to what men want. Man says he's a woman, then he's a woman. Like, who are these women with the audacity to say no to him? Like, it was just, yeah, it was it was surreal, I think. What unfolded here was so unexpected for everyday yeah. New Zealanders. So this station literally launched the week that that happened. So oh wow, timing, right? Yeah. I mean, I'm in my 50s, and so I grew up through the 70s and 80s. So for me, the understanding of feminism is what is in my own experience. So then, of course, that's that, that traditional third wave type feminism. And I know a lot of my contemporaries, a lot of women that I are mums like I am that you chat with who are not really politically or socially aware. Yeah. All of a sudden saw images because really harrowing images came out and there was no way that they could hide things like terrifying, threatening, angry men yeah. yelling at women. Yeah. And finally, I think a lot of women, particularly my age, middle, middle-aged women, a number of them asked me after I started this job, I'm like, Marie, what's going on? So just explain for listeners the sort of evolution of feminism. So from where things started to where they are now, because I think a lot of people are psychologically sort of stuck 20 or 30 years back and may not have realized that things have sort of moved on in feminism. Oh, yeah. I mean, I think maybe the main movement that helps to explain what's going on now is the sort of ever increasing or ever moving drive to inclusion. That's like, that is the maybe central and defining value. Somehow, somewhere along the way, from the second wave on, I think there was this thought like, you know, maybe only elite women have the time or something to do feminism. These are, you know, women like who's who have the sort of support of their husbands or something and then okay so there's certain voices that are getting missed out of feminist advocacy I'm kind of skeptical about that narrative to be honest because when you actually look at the sorts of things that feminists were advocating for it's very often things that serve the interests of most women or some of the worst off women but I, I, I'm a bit skeptical that it was just like privileged white women trying to close the Hollywood pay gap or whatever. Like, I yeah. just think that's false. But okay, let's pretend there was at least some of that going on where the people involved were somehow not representative of the full spectrum of women. And so certain issues did get missed out as feminist issues. And so there was a sort of push, like, yeah, toward inclusion in a way that I think started off as being kind of helpful a good thing, right? So let's make sure we're definitely representing the interests of women with disabilities, where there really is a kind of intersection between, you know, you're more vulnerable to sexual exploitation, for example. So these things are squarely feminist issues, but they kind of more severely affect particular minority groups of women. But that drive, I think that really became a sort of big feature of third wave feminism and what now gets called intersectional feminism, Kind of came in and tried to like bundle a lot of different like minority group features together and it sort of made a slip from like looking for specifically feminist issues in minority groups of women to combining 
the issues of distinct minority groups. So instead of thinking women with disabilities are more vulnerable to sexual exploitation and sexual exploitation is a feminist issue, the move would be Jewish women face particular issues as Jews and as women. So feminism needs to be about Jewish issues and women issues together. And of course, once you do that for all the women (laughs) in all their glorious diversity, you've essentially ended up with a global justice movement because that's going to get you almost all of the social justice issues in the whole world on the whole kind of smorgasbord. I think the logic of that, even if it started out with good intentions, has really kind of just really opened up what even is considered to be a feminist issue or a kind of part of the feminist project. And of course, then it's not that surprising that we've ended up with this obsessive focus on gender minorities and trans people and kind of rolling all that under this, I think, false flag of the LGBTQIA+. That's, I guess, how we've got roughly where we are today, this idea that, like, trans and gender diverse people are the most vulnerable minority and somehow that's then the job of feminism to, like, include and champion rather than women's issues, like abortion or whatever. Well, it's almost like inclusionary feminist includes everyone except women. Yes, except women as women. And actually, I think this was so fascinating. I don't know if you saw that Vice debate earlier in the year. I wrote about this for Quillette because I was so interested in how they presented the diversity of women. They clearly, they, they wanted to present themselves as having a debate between women about feminism with viewpoint diversity. But what they ended up doing was getting like two white women, but who were conservatives, I think US conservatives, one's Australian but lives there now, and then everyone else had these further features like disability or race or whatever, lesbians or whatever. But then the way that the debate was presented, it was almost like the people with legitimate issues are the ones that have these further features of identity. So really the women who were only affected as women were sort of presented as these like privileged, sort of like even anti-feminist type. There was no representation of a woman with no further identity features that are marginalised, right, just a wealthy, white, straight woman, but who had experienced like childhood sexual abuse or who had struggled to access abortion or who had been terribly impacted by pornography and come to have like self-harming or body hatred issues. There was just Mm -hmm. zero representation of what I would call issues of like women qua women, like just the issues that women experience in virtue of their femaleness or their kind of socially imposed femininity. I find it fascinating to see that play out at the moment, that it's like you're only legitimate if, as a woman if you can come up with some complaint that you share with a man. So your, your racial complaints are valid, but your complaints as a woman are not. And I think that's really such a revealing sign of the kind of social tolerance of and for feminism, including by women themselves. Gender is the new battleground, though. Gender yeah. is the new battleground, not only for women, but also with an intersectionality. Mm-hmm. Do you think that this will be the Alamo, that this ideology will potentially die on? I think so. It's interesting because it's felt so slow and it's hard to have a realistic sense I think for me of like exactly how many people have woken up and where we are in that peak the world trajectory Mm -hmm. like I think I am quite optimistic that 
once people really know what's going on, and especially once women really see what they are standing to lose, they will fight back. I'm not totally sure of where I think we are in that stage now. It's like in Australia, it feels very recent that there's been kind of any attention and progress at all. Like even a year ago, it was just like one female politician saying something and then the whole nation coming down on her so hard. I think the sort of debate, like gender identity replacing or displacing sex, whether gender retains the sort of second wave analysis as being this external thing imposed upon people on the basis of sex and we think that's bad, or we shift to this idea that it's all about identity and self-determination and self-curation. I think that battle has a lot of really interesting and complex moral and political issues and it will bring people, people get fired up once they get into it and once they learn what's at stake. So yeah, I'm confident that will happen. I'm just not confident about what stage both of our countries are at at the moment. Yeah, I have a theory, which I repeat often in the show, but I see that the ideology can only flourish or perpetrate in an environment of affluence. Mm -hmm. That affluence now is beginning to be placed under pressure with Mm -hmm. financial constraints, particularly in a lot of the families that have people who are deeply embedded in the ideology because you don't see this ideology you're not seeing it in central africa for example it's not a thing yeah okay so that is one of the things that i do wonder is whether or not the one thing that turns it around isn't just the issues themselves like trans ideology and the mutilation of children in our schools grooming that goes on there but it's actually the financial constraints that people get placed under that they actually have bigger things that they need to worry about than whether or not they misgender somebody or get their pronouns wrong. That's tricky though, right? Because it's not like that the people who will come under financial pressure are the parents, not the children. And I do think a lot of this is coming from sort of children slash adolescents slash like early 20 year olds. Of course, it's not coming from nowhere in them. It is like a generational issue that's being pushed by outside diversity programs, training in schools and by corporate diversity and inclusion initiatives and by the UN, like it's in the kind of zeitgeist. But yeah, I'm not sure whether like parents and families kind of coming under financial pressure will be enough to get the kids to realize they have bigger fish to fry. And it is, there are, of course, some adults going along with this, but it's kind of more rare and it's more embarrassing, right? Like you have a school friend and they come out as non-binary and you just a little bit want to die for them like sorry like, that's not you know what I mean when you're so embarrassed yeah. for them that you just want to die a little bit like it's just yeah. like that stuff's kind of for the kids right? it's, it's yeah. like a, a like an eight-year-old punk or something I don't know it is a, like a social contagion, you know, yes. and I, I've got two teen- teenage sons, so I talk to, to my sons about this all the time. Yeah. And what I'm seeing is it's the young women who are particularly vulnerable. Yeah. I worry. If I, I wouldn't want to have daughters. Two of my closest friends have got two daughters, same age as my boys, and they're worried. They're worried yeah. about all the pressure that women suffer and especially young women and all of these ideas and the pressure to conform and to fit into a peer group. Do you see that peer group pressure being a factor? Yeah, absolutely. I think that's absolutely right. But I think it's probably not the whole story. So I I certainly think there's a strong social contagion element to this. And actually, I don't know what else it could be given the huge change in 
the sort of demographics of trans? Like you, you need an explanation for that. Why was it in the 60s mostly middle-aged men and now it's mostly teenage girls? Like that, that's not a... There's nothing you can say about like what they might want to say about sexual orientation. It's just like, oh, well, with greater acceptance, they came greater numbers. Fine. There's not a complete shift from it being 50-year-old men to 17-year-old girls. Yeah. <laughs> that, that needs an explanation. So I certainly think there's a social contagion element. But I also think there's probably just like many other things to say too, right? So what is creating in girls the impulse to disidentify with femininity or womanhood or femaleness, like however you want to tell it. And then maybe that's like, there's a lot to say there, right? Like maybe porn is a huge part of the explanation because you're getting access through the internet or you're getting sort of your first sexual experiences. Boys are expected to do horrible things that, that you don't like, or you're seeing this class of persons just being treated in this particular way in porn that is like, degrading and hateful and you don't identify with that position like you don't want to be that human that's for that youth so I just feel like once you take all those things into account like yeah even just sort of beauty objectification and the pressures young girls might feel about that and their constant comparisons with other girls on social media and you, you put once you plug the sort of full maybe feminist explanation of what sorts of pressures girls and women are under in our society, maybe it's no surprise that girls are going to be fleeing the category girl. And okay, here's this thing that's being branded as a shiny and cool alternative. Okay, maybe they're non-binary, maybe they're trans. It's got to sort of be an aggravating factor that their friends are sort of rewarding that or teachers or adults or whatever, you can get attention and esteem. But I think we also need to look at the like, yeah, the causes of discomfort that are causing girls to want to disidentify in the first place. And all of that is just to say, we still desperately need real feminism here. There's <laughs> quite a lot of stuff to work out and all that stuff is core feminist issues in the sense the second wave understood it, not this like super inclusive theory for everyone sense that the third wave has in mind. And it's also the desire to have the conversations. Like, as you said, there is a story to be answered there, but no yes. one's wanting to have the discussion or explore it. Another one for me is the overrepresentation of people who are on the autism spectrum disorder yeah. within the trans ideology. So that yeah. there is definitely something that needs to be explored and answered there, but it doesn't seem to be allowed to, which then brings us to what you do. Can sometimes things get a little bit crunchy at the faculty lounge for you? I mean, you've been quite outspoken <laughs> in your work. How has that been received? How are things? Because, I mean, Melbourne isn't exactly, you know, it is a bit of a woke utopia. Yeah. <laughs> Luckily, there is no faculty lounge, or if there is, I don't go to it. <laughs> I avoid some of those more hostile uh, possible social situations. Of course, I know that campus is divided over this, and I know, yeah, that it's been divided on multiple occasions uh, over the years as these issues have kind of like flared up on our campus or in our, our state. Give us an example how this started for you, how you sort of got your toes wet in this. I guess the first controversy on campus was that Victoria was passing self-ID, so the Birth, Deaths and Marriages Registration Amendment Bill, I think this was 2019, if I remember correctly, and I decided to have an event 
And now what a perfectly normal thing for an academic to do, right? There's new legislation, it raises interesting issues, a potential conflict of interest between different minority groups. Sorry, I use that word for women and some people find that irritating, but between the group of women and the minority group of trans, whatever. That's so normal to want to have an event to talk about that. And I got experts, right? So I got a, a professor of law to talk about the, the issues in the sort of sport, uh, Sex Discrimination Act and sport. I got a couple of professors who had taught feminism before. Like it was an it was a credible lineup. But that, you know, I think that resulted in like there was a big protest outside. There were some some sort of Equality Australia sort of penned and uh, what do you call that? Like a, a petition or an open letter or whatever it is, sort of condemning the event. Various staff got involved. So all of this, of course, is happening before the event. Yes. I mean, you'd potentially expect it if they'd attended the event, had the discussion, and then offered a review or critique of the event. But they tend to do that ahead of time now. They do, yeah. I've noticed that for almost everything that that I've attracted great resistance for. It's almost always like predicting what they think a turf might say. (laughs) And then they project all the fantasies and delusions onto that. And then they're railing against you for this thing you haven't even done or said yet and probably wouldn't say and probably has nothing to do with you. It's really baffling. And the actual event, yeah, I think we just sort of had a, a discussion about, um, you know, the replacing of sex with gender identity and what might be at stake there and, like, things that we should be thinking about when we bring massive legislative reform in that throws out a central human category that <laughs> there's the absolutely enormous repercussions of doing that as you'll know because in New Zealand you were having the exact same discussions yeah, at the same year time. Or so later yeah so I don't know I think these it's a very clever propaganda on the part of the opponents to just say like there's nothing to talk about here anyone who wants to raise issues about this is just a hateful bigot yeah that's kind of clever politics right because then you can avoid having the discussion ever at all and I do sort of grudgingly admire it would be going too far because it's absolutely infuriating. But I can see that it's like a good political tactic just to cast your opponents as doing hate speech so you never have to engage with them. And you can always get yourself off the hook by having to make the arguments yourself because, you, oh, I absolutely cannot legitimise a hate speaker. (laughs) Oh, cool. So you just get to stay home lobbing insults um, and never back up your argument. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, it's bad intellectual, but it's good politics. And also, too, they the hyperbolic language. Oh, yeah. That, that is insane. I have a thing called the woke word of the week that I do mm-hmm. each week on the show, and last week was violence. Mm-hmm. Because but the actual definition, I mean, the dictionary definition and the UN's definition are two quite different things. And so the UN definition essentially is if someone says something that you find slightly irritating or offensive, that could be deemed as violence. Oh, that's, wow. That's, that's concept not, creep. Yeah. yeah, that's, oh, a concept creep. I'm going to write that down. I've not heard <laughs> that one before. It is, yeah. I just find that incredibly infuriating, but in itself, yeah. it is quite dangerous because that goes on and it's that sort of language and acceptance that mm-hmm. next minute turns up in legislation and you think to yourself, well, how did that get there? Yeah. No, that's right. I mean, I've been battling that at the University of Melbourne, so... They, they had a sort of uh, gender affirmation. Actually, I'm now mixing up the policies. It was either in the gender affirmation policy or it was in the new 
free speech policy and guidelines on free speech. Maybe it was in the letter. Anyway, there was these, there were these kind of slippery concepts, right, about harm or about like what well-being. So if if something was going to like harm the student community or harm the well-being of the students, then maybe that event could be shut down on those grounds. And again, you think, well, yeah, if, if the university was really clear on what these concepts meant, mm. like it had to be high risk of a riot, so students' physical safety was at risk, then yes, maybe you can shut the event down. If if that just secretly means people getting offended, <laughs> so you're now giving veto power to students to weaponize the claim of offendedness, even whether they are or aren't in fact offended, really you're just giving them a way to shut down events they don't like. It's so irresponsible of a university given the function of a university. That concept creep issue is sort of playing out everywhere. And actually it's it's almost about to be playing out in every workplace because Victoria has just introduced these provisions for like psychosocial safety. And I don't know if you've seen, I have like used them recently <laughs> because the, I've made a complaint against the University of Melbourne to WorkSafe because they've kind of failed to take sufficient action on this campaign of harassment that's been going on against me all semester. But I do have these sorts of reservations, which again, I wrote about last month for Colette, about like whether universities should be allowing these kinds of protections because there's a sense in which they go too far, right? Like they, mm. they risk shutting down free speech on campus because everyone's got this claim to their psychosocial safety being compromised. Probably it would be better if we all sealed ourselves to possibly offensive speech rather than than that we were all constantly weaponizing our alleged trauma against each other and no one could say anything. I mean, as they say, the best way to cure hate speech is with more speech. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And it's funny, I've written here, safety, does the barn door swing both ways? Well, hopefully it will. In your case, it will swing both ways because that's one thing I've certainly observed is that people from that ideological place, critical justice place, will shut down conversation, want to restrict speech, claim harm, claim that they need to protect, and they do not have to justify listening or engaging in a conversation because as far as they're concerned, their arguments are settled. And they won't, and particularly if they claim violence or harm, they won't entertain anything else. But when the boot is on the other foot, they're mm-hmm. like, oh, no, we, no, you can't accept that. And that is what I find so so sad because university is the place that you should be able to hash these ideas out. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And I think students, maybe we're just not doing a good job as academics of inculcating new students into that culture, especially if the wider society is sort of failing in that respect of creating resilience. Maybe it just has to be part of every first year's first week, right? That like you learn what are universities for, what's their role in a democratic society, what are the core principles on which they're founded, what is academic freedom? Why does it matter? Why do we need it? Right. And then maybe students then have a kind of healthier respect for the academics that are actually using their freedom within their role to pursue dangerous ideas or controversial ideas or offensive ideas. I think, yeah, that you don't have the freedom to do that. You don't actually have freedom. So, yeah, it's, I'm, I guess we're just like experiencing these issues now 
And the hope will be that the universities or at least some of the universities show leadership in getting the balance right, like re responding to these problems and, yeah, really coming out in favour of academic freedom and, and the protection of this kind of speech and helping students to understand that's what the university experience is all about, like challenging ideas and maybe upsetting and the kinds of like philosophies like that, the kinds of ideas that like pull the rug out from under you. They're extremely disorienting in some ways. You can, I just remember spinning out for weeks about whether there's an external world when I'm like 21, you know, like that's, that's kind of the whole point, like have, take some intellectual risks and challenge yourself. So yeah, maybe that's on us to make sure we really communicate that so we don't have the kinds of students that are then feeling like they are entitled to make complaints when they feel uncomfortable about a classroom discussion. Have you actually seen a change in the students that have passed through your classrooms in the last few years? I mean, are they more curious? I find curiosity is something that is beginning to lack in amongst kids. Are you seeing that as a academic? I'm not, but I think I'm not in a good position to see it because I'm a philosopher and we are probably the the most curious discipline. <laughs> we really attract the types of students that are enjoying spinning out about whether they're a brain in a vat or whatever. So even if there are hardly any of them anymore, they're still the ones that we're getting. And there's another factor on top of that, which is like anyone who's aware of the political disputes around me they're not going to take my class if they feel like they might be unsafe or they might feel like my politics is violence or whatever. So not only am I getting philosophy students who are generally awesome, I'm getting the resilient philosophy students that are happy to have the discussions around the kind of stuff I'm involved in or at least aren't like repelled by the mere knowledge of what my, my views are. So I think I'm probably having a curatedly excellent experience. <laughs> That's a silver lining though, isn't it? To all yeah, of this. It it's sort of like a, a self-willowing progress or a self-willowing process uh, to make sure that the quality of student you're getting in front of you is actually yes. really highly engaged. So that in it itself is, is a yeah. good thing. It's a really good thing. Like I've just had consistently really good experiences here. Um, so, yeah. The Oxford Union, there was a little bit of a brouhaha across there. Tell us a wee bit more about that. Oh, yes, that was um, highly entertaining. I, I I read Kathleen's most, Kathleen Stock's most recent Unheard column where she was sort of comparing her talk at the Cambridge Union, I think, the year before, and then her more recent talk at the Oxford Union. That was uh, absolutely remarkable. I would highly recommend it to anyone who hasn't read it because she was sort of describing the extreme hostility of the Cambridge experience compared to, like, getting quite a lot of support at Oxford and it's feeling like a much more friendly audience despite this one guy who glued his head to the floor and sort of disrupted the event until he could be removed. I don't know what that shows. Like is that an Oxford-Cambridge distinction where Oxford has a healthier attitude toward controversial or offensive or whatever challenging speech or is that a difference a year makes to Kathleen kind of having left Sussex and really like come into her own as a public intellectual and not giving any kind of a penny more about anything, <laughs> just becoming a really like charismatic and interesting and strong speaker. Like are people more interested or more supportive of her? Is it that the whole debate has just shifted so positively between last year and this year in the UK, which I think it certainly has. I think there's a lot more support and it's become a lot more of an obvious 
issue in their politics. Yeah, I don't know quite how to explain that difference, but it does seem like a really positive uh, difference how that went. We were talking about before we started recording, um, I was letting you know about my cancellation experience, which was, you know, all the way, well, gosh, I dodged several bullets from 2018 to 2020. And then in 2020, I finally threw it out there. And I won't lie, cancellation isn't fun. Yeah. But I'm now a firm believer that it sets you free. And it's actually quite nice now to move forward. I mean, what brought me to this role is having the bravery now to go, you know what, I'm going to vent my spleen once a week to the world (laughs) uh, because I can and I want to. Do you find that too? Has that actually now increased your academic freedom now that you've actually in a way had all that happen? And you're like, well, you know where I stand now. I'm going to get on with teaching these young minds. Yeah, it's interesting. I definitely felt like that the year before last year. So 2021 was when I maybe had my most dramatic cancellation attempt. And I think once I came through that, I felt like, okay, if that's the thing where I'll come out of it in the clear, then I'm fine. Like I'm not going to do anything more dramatic than that ever. Like that, that was the line probably. I was probably right at the line. So extrapolate out a little bit more on that for our listeners. So I started this website early in 2021 called No Conflict, they said, noconflictthesaid.org, and I was gathering anonymous testimonies from women about their experiences in women-only spaces being disrupted by trans women. But what I wrote on the website was disrupted by men. So I was just asking, in general, if a man has been, you know, in your domestic violence recovery group or your women-only choir or whatever it is, this huge range of women-only spaces, if men have started using them, how does that impact you? How do you feel about it? What sorts of negatives has that involved? And that came out of me having uh, interviewing uh, Senator Claire Chandler for the LGB Alliance and talking about the fact that Australian states were passing these laws to replace sex with gender identity, which would be mean these men being able to just include themselves in women-only spaces, services and provisions, but us absolutely not gathering any data about the effects of that. So we just don't know whether women are sort of self-excluding from the women-only swimming session now because it turns out there's men going there and that conflicts with their, you know, religious beliefs. We just don't know because we're not we're not tracking any of those effects. So I thought step one just at least get some testimonies in so we can start considering what the issues might be and learn a bit about stuff we've been overlooking. And then the big sort of public reaction to that was that I'm vilifying trans women by calling them men and by like highlighting stories about them being sort of behaving negatively. So being predatory or being somehow like bringing negative experiences into women only spaces. And it's true. I wasn't asking please tell me about the time you peed next to a trans woman and it was completely fine. That wasn't what the website was for. Some of these accusations were like, yeah, okay, for, for philosophical reasons, you, you should consider them, right? Like, is this demonizing a minority group by focusing on its worst actors? Like, what? these are reasonable questions. The opponents weren't reasonable. They made all these ludicrous allegations. Like, this is a research proposal, but she doesn't have research ethics. Well, it's not a research project and they had no grounds to believe that, but they just alleged it. Oh, she's a turf, so she, she shouldn't be teaching feminism. So we're going to try to get an inquiry into her teaching, right? So all of these kind of, um, yeah, accusations and then like subsequent investigations 
uh, of those 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 allegations. But yeah, I guess I ended up thinking, okay, this has been thoroughly investigated by the university and I've been cleared. That's probably about the limit of what I want to say, right? I want to say trans women are men. I want to say it's a real problem that men have started including themselves in women-only spaces. It's bad for women. And I want to talk about the ways in which it's bad for women. That's probably about the most that I need. So I did feel quite liberated after that to be like going on with things. <laughs> and it's interesting because this year and more recently, there's a sense in which what happened relating to the Let Women Speak rally, I was again then kind of subject to disciplinary proceedings, but I was more confident that they were stupid because of course you can't discipline a member of staff for going to a feminist event on the weekend. That is absolutely none of the university's business. And they are like so obviously overstepping by even thinking that's their business. So whereas in 2021, I sort of thought, oh, yeah, I can see how there's a question here. <laughs> right? I couldn't see that at all this time around. And yet I felt like the way they came at me this time around was actually much more severe. So this time around, the dean sort of sending an email out to my whole faculty, like denouncing the rally. That was much more dramatic than anything that happened in 2021. Do you think that that, though, has been fueled by the fact that those in authority have been able to get away with so much when it comes to speech, liberty and freedoms across the COVID years, that once the COVID panic has subsided, that they now think that they can roll this out into other avenues? Because certainly in Melbourne, you guys were locked down quite Mm. judiciously for a long time. Yeah. No, that's really interesting. I hadn't kind of thought about it in that connection that like we've become docile and now the leaders are used to having a certain sort of like authority that they just cheerfully keep wielding in other matters. Because I know that certainly has happened here. (laughs) Yeah, okay. I'd have to think about that because I mean some of it is coming from the politician like um, John John Pastuto's reaction to Moira Deeming in the rally. And Dan Andrews obviously just had an absolutely ridiculous, hostile uh, reaction. But, you know, something like the University of Melbourne leadership or the dean, I don't know if that can be explained in that way. I think maybe it's just like it's more about feeling so morally confident. And that's just, yeah, trans activism has become a dominant discourse. It's so widely accepted on the left and the left is in power. So I think it's just more like the overconfidence of the people who have power about the rightness of their views. And it doesn't even occur, it's just invisible to them that that's a personal philosophy or an ideology that it's not widely shared. Mm. Professor Grant Schofield here wrote a piece uh, several weeks ago, I don't know whether you saw it, he was talking about the inherent bias politically and ideologically within universities and the inability Mm. to be able to speak freely now as a faculty. member and how frustrating that is and I mean I know people in academy here who have to be exceptionally careful now of what they study what they say what they publish and that in itself is a censorship that I think is quite dangerous yeah I, I think that's right I saw something recently from the New Zealand free speech union so I'm wondering if that was the thing because it was about like a survey of how free I think it was just staff and universities feel to talk about controversial topics or to work on controversial mm-hmm. topics. And it was pretty shocking. And again, I don't quite know who to put the responsibility for that on, right? Is it like 
because academics, they do have quite a lot of protection in terms of their role, much more than almost anyone else. Maybe judges are the only ones that like have a longer security, career security or whatever. So there's a sense in which you do have to be prepared to take a bit of flack and, and use that position. But then on the other hand, maybe we should be blaming, yeah, censorious students and faculty and members of the public who are just really imposing their personal morality on everyone else. And it's the fact that they're creating these awful threats and sanctions that do make people legitimately fear for their jobs and livelihoods. So, yeah, are the academics responding rationally to the threats or are the academics being a little bit cowardly given the protections of their role? And maybe all that's actually just kind of playing out now, right? Like maybe people feel scared, but then they want to watch what happens to someone else. So, okay, I'm performing it all in the public theatre of Victoria. Let's see if she gets fired. Okay, she didn't. So maybe you are allowed to do that. So maybe, again, this is just a kind of live experiment where people will get a bit more confidence after certain controversies have been resolved. I'm not sure. Well, confidence and courage too. I think it does take a certain amount of courage to put yourself out there. And you've certainly done that. Where can people find more information about you and some of the, read some of the work that you've put out in recent times? Probably my website's the best uh, one-stop place. So that's hollylawford-smith.org. I just kind of keep that up to date um, if I've written anything for the media or done an interview or a podcast or my new book coming out soon. That's kind of there. Just, yeah, everything is basically there. Excellent. Well, Holly, time's flown by. I can't believe how fast (laughs) time has gone. I really do appreciate the time taken. Hopefully you can get back across the side of the ditch soon and catch up with family and friends. And Keep up the good work there at the University of Melbourne. This has been Holly Lawford-Smith. I'm Marie here on Counterculture. Don't disappear. There's still more great content and music here to come on RCR. You're listening to Counterculture on RCR. You with Counterculture here on Reality Check Radio. I am Marie and my guest is James Fishback from Incubate Debate in the United States. James, good morning and welcome to Reality Check Radio. Well, good morning. Thank you for having me. I am really excited. I got sent an article that you wrote a few weeks ago in the Free Press and it put my spidey senses up. And the friend that sent it to me said, oh, you're going to love this. And it is titled The High School Debates. Debate is no longer allowed. So give us an, an idea of what is in the article and what prompted you to write it. Absolutely. What's the article details is how high school debate went from an activity that elevated objectivity and merit and free speech into an echo chamber where certain viewpoints are censored and free speech is under attack. And the article is really centered around the National Speech and Debate Association, which is the oldest debate league in the country in the United States, as well as the most influential. And the way the, the the article is really developed is around something called a judge paradigm. So these are essentially online blog posts that judges, the high school debate judges, submit to the tournaments. And they were originally designed so students could read their judges' criteria expectations before the debate and adapt accordingly. So the way it might work is if a judge had a preference for students to not speak 
a mile a minute and to slow down by reading a judge's paradigm, the, the, the student would know, Hey, I've got to slow down a little bit. The judge isn't on the spreading or the 300 mile, uh, the 300 word per minute bandwagon. If the judge said, Hey, I I'd prefer you, you structure your evidence this way, or I'd prefer you spend a lot more times on your impact, which is the, why your argument matters then the student would adapt accordingly. Now, that's all fine and good. These judge paradigms, when they are used to relay information around style and, and speed, that's perfectly fine. But what's happened over the last couple of years is these paradigms have been hijacked. They're now riddled with political and ideological statements that, in effect, tell students what they can and can't say and how they can and can't say it. So the article starts off with this example from the 2019 National College debate champion here in the United States. She is a regular on the high school debate scene. And she tells students before they even begin debating in front of her, she tells them, quote, before anything else, including being a debate judge, I am a Marxist, Leninist, Maoist. I will no longer evaluate and thus ever vote for arguments which include capitalism good, imperialist war good, neoliberalism good, defense of the U.S. or nationalism good, normalizing Israel colonialism, U.S. white fascist policing good. So how does that young American sophomore feel when she walks into a debate round and she has an argument about how capitalism is the best way to protect the individual liberties of the people or how it breeds innovation and growth? And so it it really tilts the scale against this free and open dialogue that high school debate was all about. It changed my life. I did debate for four years in high school. I was a debate coach for two years afterward. This activity has tremendous potential, but it's under attack by individuals who are now using it as more of a Trojan horse. On the outside, it appears to be this vehicle for free speech, open expression, diversity of thought, but it's yet another tool that's used by the diversity, equity, and inclusion crowd to censor, to attack free speech, and to push an agenda where only one side is truly righteous. Surely within the paradigms for these judges, this must go against the charter of the national body. It does. It absolutely does. In fact, the the charter says, and I quote, judges should decide the round as it's debated, not based on their personal beliefs. But as you know, it's not necessarily what the rules say. It's are the rules enforced? And there's no question that this judge and the many others like her that I've outlined in my piece and the hundreds of other paradigms that didn't get to make it in the piece, but are egregious, they blatantly violate the rules of high school debate. But it's one thing to violate the rules. It's another thing to be enforced, to have those rules enforced against you. And it seems that the National Speech Debate Association has no interest in enforcing these rules in large part because it's a feature, not a bug of how they operate. They are perfectly fine with censoring conservative or even right of center, even centrist arguments, as long as it saves their students the awkward conversations about what happened during the pandemic with the lockdowns, what happened with the vaccine mandates, what happened around childhood education as a result of the lies that we were told, what's happening at the southern border, what's happening, the truth about the Second Amendment or President Trump's foreign policy. So in uh, in, an, in an attempt to save kids from the emotional volatility of having to come to terms with the the actual facts of those issues, they instead allow this tacit censorship that keeps everything hunky-dory and stable. Mm. When did the rot start setting in? You know, I 
I barely noticed, and I'd, I'd really have to reach to go back to my time as a high school debater, which was 2009 to 2013. I'll tell you, I had a blast. I had an awful childhood stutter as a kid, and debate gave me that opportunity to fix it. Uh, you know, when you're giving speeches every weekend, when you're practicing to give those speeches every single day, it really does help with that. I remember as a high school freshman reading Milton Friedman, reading The Economist magazine, reading what was happening in countries that six months prior, I had no idea where to find on a map. So it was an, truly an eye-opening experience. But when I left in 2013, and then I returned in 2017, the debate scene that I came back to, I hardly recognized. This thing that transformed my life had transformed into something that was a shell of its former self. If I had to guess, I would say it had something to do with a certain man coming down a certain escalator in the summer of 2015. And um, whether whether you, you support his policies or not, there's no doubting that when Donald Trump entered the race and then became president of the United States, it created this tribalism. And the tribalism said, are you with us or are you against us? Because our side is the only side that's truly right and just. And I think in their mind, those who are censoring in the high school debate scene, they view this as righteous because they view the other side as rooted in fear, paranoia, racism, xenophobia, nationalism. And I'll tell you, they wouldn't have that view if both sides had an equal opportunity to debate. They would see that the conservative viewpoint is really about putting the citizens of a country first. It's about individual liberty. It's about self-defense. It is about economic liberty. And it's a shame that they can't see that and they are talked into this tribalistic political nature. And that's in large part because they've censored the other side who doesn't have a chance to convince them otherwise. I mentioned to you before we got started, I was an exchange student in the US in the late 80s. And so I was I'm very aware of this debate scene. So it's something that here in New Zealand isn't very prevalent. But what I remember going to the debates, I used to go and watch the debates that our school competed in. What I loved seeing was how you would have students that were at one school who because of the environment that the school was in, would have leanings uh, and opinions in one form, were pitched against quite a different school, and the moot was opposite. They had to argue opposite of what you would normally expect. And watching what would unfold, and you could see that students would then often have to argue something that normally they would personally be against but they've had to research and watch that unflowering so the school i was at was based off an air force base so it was a very pro-military 80 percent of the students there were the uh, students of military personnel bearing in mind late 80s so then when they were given a moot that was do you believe that american intervention is required in and I think it was uh, Panama was the was the topic. And watching right. these kids who were all really pro that, having to then think, well, okay, let's think about the other side of the story and vice versa. Yeah, and that is the value, isn't it? It's creating kids to become critical thinkers. It absolutely is. And critical thinking is at its heart being able to put yourself in other people's shoes and see different perspectives. If you just see a certain party as representing evil, then you don't have the perspective to see, well, what is actually driving this, that, and the other? I'm reminded of a debate that uh, when I was a debate coach, my students participated in about police funding. And I, I coached an all-black team 
when I came back to be a debate coach in 2017. And the idea at the time was that black people were all against the police. And the, you know, white students and Asian students had this idea that if you're black, that you are anti-police. And it wasn't until they competed alongside black students who were actually pro-police that they actually got to see, wait, there's something out there. The media is telling us one thing. Popular culture is telling us one thing. But sitting across the table and talking to people who look different from you, have come from a different background, and can kind of turn the narrative, that's profound. That is profound. That's how you bring a people and a country together. Uh, I'm reminded uh, we have a presidential candidate here in the United States on the Republican side, Vivek Ramaswamy, who talks a lot about free speech and open debate. And he says this often. He says, the path to conviction, the path to unity is through free speech and open debate. Imagine the conversations around the pandemic, around the lockdowns, around education, not just in the United States, but in New Zealand, the censorship that took place around those conversations. You weren't allowed to question certain things. Had the people, the free people of New Zealand and the United States been able to question and to really earnestly push back against this narrative, the pandemic, the response would have looked very, very different. We would not have been stripped of our liberties. We would not have been locked down in the ways that we were had we been able to have an equal dialogue with the other side and not be deemed fake news or disinformation, misinformation. And so that the heart of open debate is much bigger than high school debate. This piece and what's happened in high school debate is really a reflection of what's happening in advanced countries around the world. The ruling elite finds certain ideas unacceptable, labels them dis and misinformation, and then keeps them out of the public square in, in order to, in their words, protect the people, protect safety. And uh, the best way to beat speech that you disagree with is to have better speech and to convince otherwise. And the other thing too is I think more speech. Yeah, more speech. More speech. You get to a point, and we've certainly seen it in this country, you get to a point where you are shouted down and demonized so much for having a contrary opinion for what is set out by the ruling classes that you just get to a point where it just gets too hard and you just want to keep your head down and don't want to say anything. You're coming into primary season. So, mm -hmm. I mean, there are announcements left, right and centre now for political candidates and the brouhaha is already beginning to start. Are those conversations also starting or is it as divisive as ever? I think it's, I think it's as divisive as ever. I, one statistic that really exemplifies this, especially for young Americans, where the division is the most stark, is if you ask young Democrats, would you date a Republican? One third of Democrats say no. No, I would never date a Republican. And if you flip it, if you ask young Republicans whether they would date a Democrat, it's only 5% who would say no. Look, there's division on both sides, but it seems like the, the the unwillingness to even have that conversation is really coming from the left. I think they've been told a lot of lies and I, I don't blame them, right? I look at everything that's been said over the last couple of years, right? We were told for years that President Trump was an agent of the Kremlin, was compromised by Russia. And so when anybody on the right would support him, they were mocked by the left as being someone carrying water for Putin, someone who was a Russian double agent as well. So that statistic really, really tells a story that the division is not just about not willing to have a conversation about politics. 
it is not willing to engage them even over a drink, even over something more than that. So I look at that and say, you know, when I was growing up, when you spent your time here in the US in the late 80s, we didn't care who was a Republican or a Democrat. We didn't care. Okay, you voted for Clinton, you voted for Bush, you voted for Reagan, you know, you voted for Carter, but we were all American. We were all American. We all believed in the ideas that set this nation into motion nearly 250 years ago. Merit, free speech, diversity of thought. And to see young people scorn at the other side and to label them in such a way, you can never get unity unless you have honest conversation. And for a lot of people, by the way, that honest conversation would happen at these debate tournaments. Those kids, even if they weren't in debate, they would take that message, that empathy, that ability to listen twice as much as we speak, right? We have two ears, one mouth, that ability, that willingness to listen and speak with the other side, they would take that back to school and they would instill those values in others. And unfortunately, we're not seeing that right now. I'm talking to James Fishbeck, the founder of Incubate Debate. I'm glad you brought up patriotism because that was the one thing that struck me as a student is the level of patriotism. That was the one thread that pulled people from both sides of the political aisle together. You all bleed red. It was you America first. And it was, as a Kiwi, we don't have that level of patriotism quite the same, not as to the forefront as you had in the US. And it's actually, it is quite infectious. I found it really, really infectious. One of the things as an observer now looking back to the US, particularly in the last five years, is a determination to erode that patriotism. Mm -hmm and dismantle it. Are you sensing that, seeing it? I'm seeing it 100%. I'm seeing it 100%. You need to look no further than the New York Times editorial board member, Mara Gay, when she said a couple years ago, I was out on Long Island, I saw so many American flags, and it was repulsive. It was, right? The, the idea that all of these American flags, you know, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, if you hang an American flag, if you hung an American flag on your deck, you couldn't guess someone's political affiliation. You couldn't guess who they voted for in the last election. Now, the American flag has become this symbol of, of the right, not because the right has made it a symbol. They've always believed that it's been a symbol, like any American, but it's because the other side has now viewed the American flag as somehow symbolizing xenophobia and nationalism what they pejoratively call America first, what we proudly call America first. So patriotism has now been weaponized against people. The idea that it's somehow uh, you're proud to not stand for the flag, that you don't have the American flag. If someone gets mocked for having the flag on their car or on their lapel pin as somehow being jingoistic or being uh, some sort of nationalist and that's awful. We need to come together as a country. You saw it again in the 80s. I saw it growing up in the 90s and the early 2000s. A country where patriotism is not partisan. It is something that we all share. It transcends political party. It transcends race. That's something we have to really, really get back to, right? We have to feel like we're one country again. It's interesting you brought up Vivek Ramaswamy because he's someone I really wanted to would want to talk to. I've read his book, Quote Capital, and yeah. he talks really well around the creation of social justice ideologies within capitalism and how dangerous and pernicious they can be. Mm -hmm. Now, of course, the big thing are these ESG scores, which are starting to crop up everywhere. 
I've been following and tracking two things that have been going on, but particularly the boycotts that are starting. People are quietly, they're getting to the point where I think no one's listening to them necessarily in the media or in other formats, so they're voting with their wallets. And that seems mm-hmm. to be quite effective. So Anheuser-Busch obviously has been hit with this. Uh, now I think Target has become a target. Coles, there's been a few others that people are now saying, putting their hands up and saying no. Do you think that that is actually capitalism, dare I say it, could be the saviour of the day? I think capitalism is always the saviour of the day for all the ails, the ailments that afflict us, for all the issues that we face, whether they're the the people in in sub-Saharan Africa, whether they are economies that are trying to move up from third world to second world or even to the advanced economies. Capitalism is the solution to everything, right? When Adam Smith penned the Wealth of Nations in 1776, of course, the same birth year as our country. I don't think that was a coincidence. We can kind of look back at that and say that's interesting. But three people using their power, using their hard-earned resources to make decisions about what values they want the companies that they support to focus on is the name of the game, right? If where was Anheuser-Busch, where was Bud Light when we could have put Susan B. Anthony or Rosa Parks or Condoleezza Rice, right? Where were those advertisement campaigns? And then all of a sudden we get Dylan Mulvaney on a can. Where was the target display for Veterans Day last year or Memorial Day to honor the great men and women who paid the ultimate sacrifice to keep us to keep us all safe and to protect the values that all of us hold dear. So there's so much hypocrisy here that it, it so many Americans I think are frustrated who are participating in these boycotts. They realize they actually have some power for once and they say look, we are not going to support businesses that don't respect our values, be it Target, be it Anheuser-Busch, be it whatever. If you put certain philosophies and ideologies on a pedestal while ignoring the values that we 20 years ago all held sacred, patriotism, reverence for our men and women in uniform, the great female icons that made this country what it is today, then we have no reason to buy your product. And people will vote with their feet. And hopefully the businesses will look at that and kind of summed up, right? Go woke, go broke. They'll realize that the people can't take it anymore, that they don't want their products, that they don't want their money going into something that does not represent their and their family values. Yeah, we're certainly starting to see it here too. And I think this is the beginning of a big change. The saying done in this part of the world is if America um, sneezes, we catch a cold. One of the things that you mentioned before is in terms of the state of debate nationally. What I loved Mm -hmm. about looking into you was the fact that A, you're frustrated about it, B, you've spoken out about it, but C, you've done something about it. So Mm -hmm. talk me through Incubate Debate. Absolutely. So I left the traditional high school debate scene in 2019. I'll never forget one of my students, a black young man, really bright, really eloquent, being told by his judge, you know, you would have won the debate had you not condemned the Black Lives Matter organization. This was a white judge telling that to a black student. So that was kind of near where the straw broke the camel's back. And I said, look, this organization can't be reformed. Let's go back to the beauty of capitalism. Let's go back to creating parallel institutions where competition and in turn creative destruction reign true. And so I started this organization, a nonprofit here in the United States called Incubate Debate 
which is as much a verb as it is a noun. We're trying to incubate debate in, in these middle and high school communities. So we are the fastest growing debate league in the country. We exclusively serve the state of Florida, which is the third largest state in the U.S., and how do we do things differently? Well, first, all of our tournaments are free, which no one else can say. Everything that we do is no cost. Second, we are serious about free speech, open debate, and merit, which means that at our tournaments, these radical judges who push their ideology, and by the way, this is not a left or a right issue. Any adult pushing their ideology on a child, that is wrong. It would be just as wrong as if conservatives were doing it as if progressives are doing it. When a student comes into a round, they ought to win or lose that round on the merit, their evidence, their logic, their persuasion, their ability to answer questions from their opponent. Point blank, period. That's it. And then finally, and I'm most proud of this, is that we have citizen judges, which is to say the other debate leagues like the NSDA, they bring former high school debaters who are now college students who are now studying gender studies and feminism and all of that at the Ivy League who are really detached from reality and in turn feed this echo chamber. What we do is we bring in members from the community, citizens who actually represent the best of what makes this country so special. So law enforcement, first responders, firefighters, members of the armed forces, local elected officials, state elected officials, members of the judiciary. And oftentimes we have special guests, people like Supreme Court Justice Neil Gorsuch or Secretary of Transportation Pete Buttigieg or Governor Chris Christie and so on to really open our students up to give them all of the different viewpoints and allow that marketplace of ideas to do what it always does best, elevate the ideas that will succeed on the merit and on their logic. And what's happened as a result is students who have come in with a certain viewpoint, either two options. One, their mind is opened to different ideas and they begin to change. Or the second, and this is even just as important, is they they stick with the same idea but they end up with a much firmer conviction. I've always been pro-life. I've always been pro-life growing up in a Catholic household. But having to defend pro-life when I was a high school debater gave me even a stronger conviction in what it meant to be a pro-life American. So either you walk away with a different view, one that is rooted in evidence and logic and merit, or you walk away with the same view that you walked in with, but it now has even more evidence, logic, and merit to back it up. Beautiful conversations are happening. Kids from all backgrounds are coming together. Parents, grandparents, nieces, nephews all come to spectate our debate. These truly are laboratories of engaged citizenship and democracy. Saturdays where kids come out and debate the Constitution, where they do historical look-back debates and see was the Vietnam War justified? Was the pandemic lockdowns, were those justified? Where we debate issues like nuclear energy, uh, US nuclear policy when it comes to weapons, the border, Second Amendment, so on and so forth. So it really is a beautiful thing. And I'll tell you, we always start our incubate debate events patriotically. We start with that Pledge of Allegiance. We start by reading the opening words of the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence as a subtle reminder that we are all here pledging allegiance to one country, working to solve and to better understand the issues that often ail us. I mean, that's one of the questions I was going to bring up was around the topics that you have. I mean, you've got topic, you're hitting topics that even legacy media won't touch. Right. 
So right. that's saying something. I mean, I, I'm just looking at here in regards to uh, should the US spend more on police? Well, they, you know, and as we well know, they've spent since 2020. Right. Defunding the police was the catch cry amongst many. Uh, should the US send troops to Haiti? Well, there you go. That's an argument that's been going going on since my day uh, when I was there. The body positivity movement, helpful or harmful? Right. And those now, are the, questions, by the way, to the NSDA and to the mainstream media, those questions are off limits. And the reason why is because they're, they're viewed as settled. They're viewed as settled issues. Of course, the body positivity movement is is helpful. How dare you question that, d- uh, lest you be flat fat phobic, right? Of course, the pandemic lockdowns were brilliant. Of course, there were no issues with the 2020 election, right? So those are sort of settled questions. And what we do is we say, nothing is settled in the marketplace of ideas. The best ideas are always elevated because they have the best evidence and merit. I want to pivot slightly. AI. Everyone's talking about AI. Do you think AI is going to have an effect in the debate space? I think in in, in one way it can, in one way it, it, it can, but it wouldn't be as beneficial. We actually had a debate recently about whether AI was going to benefit students via the K through 12 teacher angle. And it was a great debate, by the way. But I think to the extent that artificial intelligence, best known today as kind of the chat GPT, that can help students research better. It can help them test ideas out help the AI kind of refute the ideas and say, give me a reason why this might not work or give me a way to embolden this. Students still need to do their own research and and whatnot. But again, it can be a helpful tool, much like for a mathematician, a calculator can be helpful or for a landscaper, uh, an automatic lawnmower machine powered could be helpful. I think where AI becomes problematic in the debate space is if it's used to replace the human interaction. So instead of going to practice with your coach or, or with your team members, you instead resort to this back and forth with this chat, this AI artificial chat. And that strips the debate, that strips the humanity from debate, the human connection. One thing that's great about debate is that every weekend or so, you're meeting with people, you're hanging out, you're having pizza, you know, you have a really tough competitive round and then afterward, you're having snacks and, and sharing a soda. That's that's the beauty of debate. It's to bring Americans from all backgrounds together to debate issues that matter, to debate topics that matter. So I, I would say AI as a research tool can be very helpful, but it should never replace the human interaction of testing ideas with 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 your with your fellow peers. Mm, and we all know that the lockdowns was one of the things that by pulling people apart, it allowed so many of these regulations and restrictions to be applied because people couldn't, it's not the same. I mean, you and I are doing this over Zoom and we do it in video so you and I can see each other. This is going out in audio, but it's not the same as the connection of actually sitting with somebody and having an organic discussion, which is there's, so. There's nothing like it. You know, if you ha- you and I have a disagreement or we agree and we walk away and give each other a hug, we shake hands, there's something there's powerful in that, that no amount of Zoom or no amount of 5G can ever replace. Absolutely. So funding, how, I mean, you, you're doing this for free. So there has to be, how are you being funded with this? Well, so we, we accept, you know, I've been fortunate enough because of my full-time work in the investing world to, to fund a lot of it, but we've also been funded by, you know, small donors here in the state of Florida, um, families who have deep ties to the state, who, who look at what's happening in the country and say, we've got to do something about it. And what better investment to make than in the future, in the future young people having important dialogue, important conversations about the issues that are top of mind for so many Americans. And I'll say this, all of our judges come to us as a volunteer. 
We almost never pay for event space, almost never pay for food. All that food is donated. Um, so we we actually run a very lean and mean operation here at Incubate Debate. And what does that mean? It means that the donations that come in go directly to impacting the students. They go directly into facilitating this dialogue to ensure that both sides can be heard. So any plans to grow from Florida? You know, if you would have asked me a couple of weeks ago before the article came out, I would have said that was maybe a two to three year plan. But the article has been read over a million times. Hundreds of people have reached out, whether they're school board members, teachers, state representatives, business partners, and they all have one question. How can we bring incubate debate to our community? And so it's something we're working on right now. We have this model. And the model, by the way, is no cost our unique formats, which are what we call easy to learn, hard to master. When you think of high school debate, you often think of this two-on-two debate where you go back and forth. It often devolves into a shouting match. Students can speak a mile a minute, but that's not the debate that happens across the dinner table. That's not the debate that happens on the patio. That's not the debate where really most Americans bridge the divide and understand each other's differences. Most of those debates, again, happen in the most unusual places where you wouldn't expect debate to happen at the dinner table, at the water cooler, so on and so forth. So we have one format, which is unique to us. We started it. It's called Roundtable. And Roundtable is where you put eight students together for 20 minutes. And there are only three rules. The first, you can't use notes. The second, you can't stand up. And the last one is the only other rule is the rule of common decency and civility. So it's sort of like the view except there are multiple views allowed. People get to have this open, free-form conversation. You can interject. You can ask questions. You can offer opinions. If someone says something you disagree with, you don't have to wait your turn. You can immediately refute. Now, that teaches two skills. One is the ability to think on your feet, but two is the ability to listen. Again, we have two ears, one mouth. Listen twice as much as we speak. My grandmother of 96 taught me that and still teaches me that, reminds me of that that the best listeners, the best debaters are often the best listeners because we they take it in and then they prioritize what they really, truly want to say. We want to take that model, that unique, those unique formats, this no-cost model, and then the idea of citizen judges, all of which are unique to incubate debate. We want to take that and bring it to individual communities across the country. So we are racing to do something this summer to identify two to three local partners on the ground in different parts of the U.S. and say, we want to work with you because you and us, we both recognize the power of open debate and free speech. Oh, that sounds so inspiring. I, I can't wait to also see the incubate corporate model where you go in the, and have debates within the corporate environment, hopefully break down some of that DEI stuff that goes on. I think that would be amazing as well. There you go. You can do that next year. <laughs> that'd be a great no, that'd be a great idea, right? Think about it. There's no better way. Yeah. You say that this is great. I say that this is bad. Let's have a debate around it. And on Bridgewater, which is the largest hedge fund in the world, they've apparently built their success on this model of debate where every idea, no idea is taken for granted, no issue is settled. Everything at any time can be up for debate. And that is the kind of rigorous standard we ought to hold ourselves to in the country, in government, in education, and especially in the corporate world. Yeah, definitely. I oh, will look, James, thank you so much for taking the time to join us this morning. Really appreciate it. Where can people find more information about what you're doing? 
Well, they can look at incubatedebate.org, just how it sounds, incubatedebate.org. Take a look at it. Look at our topics. Look at the videos of Roundtable of young students, 14, 15-year-old, having discussions about the Second Amendment or about U.S. foreign policy. And if they like what they see, we would always appreciate their support as we continue to fight to bring free speech, merit, and diversity of viewpoints back to high school debate in America. Thank you so much. Stay tuned, everybody. More interesting conversation and information here on Reality Check Radio with Marie. You're with Counterculture. You're listening to Counterculture on RCR. Reality Check Radio. I'd love to hear your thoughts here on Reality Check Radio. Share them with us via email to inbox at realitycheck.radio or by text to 2057. That's 2057. What I want to achieve with RCR is conversation. And I think we have lost the art of conversation. With RCR, I just hope that people can learn that we can all be different, we can have our own opinions, have our own views, and have those conversations in a respectful way. Because respect needs to be given, it needs to be earned, and I think that we can prove that people of all diverse perspectives, ages, opinions, can have a platform, and we can work and talk together. And so that's what I hope we get to achieve with RCR. Just independent thought alternative thought and I I expect that I will be castigated by many people for offering different opinions but you know as I've said before there is no such thing as a wrong opinion opinions are like noses everybody's got one the exchange of views fair debate no cancelling no interrupting no aggressive responses we want to hear what people have to say Whatever side you're on, and the listener, the consumer, with that information, can make of it what they will. That is the mission. It's a good mission. This is Counterculture on Reality Check Radio. I am Marie. It is now time for Media Matters, the weekly stroll through the newspapers, and the person I'd love to stroll with every week is Marty Gibson. How are you, Marty? I'm good, thanks, Marie. How are you? I'm very well. I'm very well. And I've tried out a new uh, system for the newspapers this week. And my system was, is to gather up said editions. And instead of reading it from front to back, which takes forever, I have gone through and decided to lump things in themes. Now, I've gone and uh, taken newspapers from a cross section, sort of Friday through Monday. And I have to say, there were certainly some themes that did pop out, and I thought we would cover those today, primarily economy. You also struck out in terms of some political themes, and then I've also got some more sort of social and ideological ones. And the themes that were in the papers this week compared to things that we've seen in previous weeks that just seem to have miraculously disappeared. Yes, it's really worth having a look at what's not in the paper. A cynical person might think that uh, Labour Party officials had had a talk to the people in charge of the papers and said, look, if we can ease up a little bit on Māori uh, anger and, yeah, if you can just tone the crime down a little bit, uh, none of that's playing very well to our polling. Very little crime apart from the stuff that they absolutely had to have, which was the 12-year-old girl who was sitting with her sister in McDonald's having a bit of a talk and a laugh and got beaten up by two girls who thought they were laughing at her. 
Filipino family only moved to New Zealand last year, and Crystal says her parents have not stopped crying and shaking since the assault. Incidents like this never occurred to us even back in the Philippines. It was about it. And I covered a monologue this morning, uh, just touched on it, of course, is uh, the gang homicide in Porky. The tensions there on a knife edge that the principal of a Porky college and I think one other primary school, Porky college is closing for the week because mm. he is concerned around the tensions among student body and faculty. And the, another school is uh, closing due to its proximity to the cemetery. It is so sad with all this other bread and circuses going on with Pride Week and all the rest of it, you have the situation un- unfolding in a portiki and it is just the whole thing is just awful. And of course, you're never going to see the police turning up with uh, area denial weapons pioneered in communist China. They're never going to turn up with rocket launches the way they did uh, with the Wellington protesters. I actually have got someone that lives in the area and I ask them how are things going across there. She's in the Eastern Bay Plenty area, as is her sister, and her sister lives in the street where the homicide Mm. happened. And she was telling me about how her sister had to return home under a police escort. And I said, how are things today? All calm overnight. Today will be the big one. Lots of posturing at the moment and a lot of -of out-of-town police. The biggest problem will be the stupid young gang prospects from the other side kicking things off. Two schools are close to the tangi and have opted to close. One, in one case, it's right on the boundary. I suspect a few adjoining businesses may also choose to close. Poor reporter, because if you've, I mean, you and I have both spent time there. You drive through there on a regular basis when you travel from your home to your family home and I spent a lot of time there as a kid it's a, it's a lovely place it is like many of our smaller provincial towns there is tension there is gang tension and not a lot's done to suppress I think they keep it so, to a certain level and then you have things like this happen and I'm again surprised at how little is really has turned up in the yeah. media about this I, I've heard more brouhaha about the fact that the principal's chosen to close for a week than the actual homicide itself. No, they're probably going to be on strike anyway again if, if you were the national party and, and you wanted to talk about this their default is always cricking down on gangs but um you know, a much more useful way to approach it is what a misery these guys make, not only for the people who live it, who live around them, most of whom aren't in gangs, but also the, the young people that gangs are still prospecting so they embark on this life of just crime and scumbag activity, and, and also even themselves. You know, I know a lot of gang members, but when they get to 50, when they get granddaughters seems to be a big trigger for them just to look back in horror on what they've done in their lives. The terrible things they've done to women, that's a much more useful way to approach it. They make lives miserable in prison. They make lives miserable for for the people who live around them. Mm. They do. So back to the papers, back to the theme. The theme, I've gone, because obviously the announcement is out tomorrow around the economy, there is great debate about whether or not we are going to be formally entering a recession. A couple of the main banks are all over it. I think I've seen Westpac reckon we're going to be there. Three out of the four banks uh, claim that we will, but we're talking like tiny numbers. The reality of it is, is whether or not we have a slight decrease in that balance of payment numbers or the optimistic slight increase. The Reserve Bank, I think, we're hoping for a 0.3 increase. The reality of it is it's milking mice. 
It is milking mice. If you are living in New Zealand right now, going to the supermarket, seeing the cost of your grocery shop, which I did on the weekend and nearly fainted, that's the reality of what we're living in. And so what I found so interesting in the paper ahead of this, typical things that you would expect, the Liam Dan's talking about the spectre of stagflation, another money piece in here from Alka Prasad talking about a fluffy pluff piece about uh, the bachelor having a business enterprise. Also, one that I found quite interesting was uh, inflation hit Kiwis are tightening belts. This is uh, the Herald on Sunday. Kirsty Wynn, uh, new data shows Kiwis are leaving fat in the budget to dine out for special occasions, but around 70% say they're eating out less. Anecdotally, some households are also reducing the number of times they order delivered meal kits or are choosing to cancel orders so they can have more control over what they spend. Chef Simon Galt revealed around 70% of respondents to his survey are staying home and cooking more. Galt polled around 1,800 households through his new What's for Dinner campaign. His findings are supported by new data by Worldline New Zealand, which is what was Paymark, they're like the FPOS people, which revealed spending on food and alcohol last month was up 8.3% on the same time last year, but well below the latest annual rate of food inflation of 12.5%. People are choosing to spend more time at home. I know we certainly have since the COVID years. And I mean, gosh, for a time there, we were forced. We were forced yeah. to spend Well, I mean, without wanting home. to interrupt your uh, summary of uh, the themes, uh, I was in the supermarket last week and I spoke with a checkout operator who told me that 50 to 60% of people going through her checkout put up six to 12 items back. She's obviously been mm. thinking about it. And she said, I said, well, what are they putting back? And she said, the good stuff. They're putting back meat, vegetables, and they're keeping the chips and fizzy. And she gets people saying, well, I haven't paid the rent this week so I can buy food. And so next week, you know, we're going to be in trouble because we're going to be paying double the rent. Yeah, every time I, you know, read about the government spending $200 million rewriting the curriculum that is then found by principles increasingly to be not fit for purpose, you just realise uh, New Zealand needs a good dose of ivermectin to cure itself of parasites. Yeah, absolutely. You know, we've got sucks on the productive economy that yeah. no one talks about. You've got school-aged children. I've got school-aged children. Budgeting. So we've had a really interesting exercise in this house over the last 24 hours around budgeting. And we pay the kids a small stipend, like a little bit each week in pocket money. And in return for that, they've got to do things like loading and unloading the dishwasher, mowing the lawns. Just as before we got started, we were late starting because the man came with the firewood. So the kids have got to stay at the firewood. That's what we do to teach them work, reward, work, reward, right? Good. Yeah. Our oldest now has a part-time job. The t two of them are so incredibly different. The older one, who's got the part-time job, I mean, he's honestly, in the last couple of years, he likes earning money. He's saved, and I mean, this is him, he has saved nearly $4,000. It's always worth telling them that they need to pay 40% uh, percent, uh, tax to you on that for the public services you give them as well. It sort of, I think, balances uh, the tendency Ooh. young people have to be socialist quite quickly. I like the idea of that. Well, the youngest one, he's really wanting a job and he's struggling because he's 15. So it's now that youth wage is gone, employers are not keen to hire kids to fill those sort of menial roles that they're used to, you know, they because they're having to pay them $21 an hour. Like when I was a kid, I used to get 
paid uh, with my grandfather on the farm and he uh, just used to give me a bit of money now and then and it really wasn't much. He could spend a lot of time teaching me how to do stuff and that was on the in the long term far more valuable. If you're having to pay a kid $20 an hour, you just got to get them doing something that is pretty boring and repetitive so you can get value out of them and, and it takes away that ability to teach them. Continuing on with the theme, as I go strolling through the papers, further on, uh, I think this one is Herald on Sunday, in the money section, uh, there was a whole segment around, so we'd, we've got Simon Galt talking about people not going out, then we've got a segment on avoiding paying those sneaky fees. So the entire piece is around how to avoid credit card contract fees, joining fees, payway fees, KiwiSaver fees, booking fees, convenience fees, 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 plenty of fees of the government I'd like to get rid of. Telling you how you can basically survive with the increasing pressure of the public sector, taking money out of the pockets of Kiwis and not delivering very much for it. Exactly. So then I dived into the places that you tend not to go in the newspaper. So I'm over in the spy section. In there, this is the headline in the spy section, which is, again, I think this is Herald on Sunday. And it is Kiwi Olympian turns to only fans to chase gold. This is a Kiwi rower, Robbie Manson, who's joined the adult-only subscription site OnlyFans to help reignite a sporting dream. He's sort of talking about a sporting dream and how he's needing to sort of fund, because, I mean, let's face it, unless you're at that top echelon of professional sport, it's a grind, right? Unless Mm. you've got corporate sponsorship and the like. (laughs) <laughs> but this is where it gets spicy. Currently based in Cambridge, the athlete settles, although he may not have regained his physical peak of three years ago, he's maintained his body and is on a mission to break down barriers by joining OnlyFans. In 2014, Mason came out. One of New Zealand's first openly LGBTQ plus people in New Zealand rowing. OnlyFans is a space where creators can lock their content behind a paywall, allowing fans to access for a monthly fee or a one-off payment. The site has grown rapidly in a few years and is reportedly now boasting more than 190 million users and more than 2 million content creators. It's known for sexual content, where adult entertainers can make hundreds of thousands of dollars. However, Manson stresses there will be nothing sexually explicit about his content, which costs $14.99 a month. Instead, he's embracing nudity as competitors did back in the ancient Olympics and hopes to break down barriers and champion body positivity. Good on him. For $14.99 a month, you can have a look at this rather good-looking chap, get his kit off. But it's not sexual at all. There will not be people of the rainbow community paying $14.99 a month to look at him. They'll be looking at him going, oh, Robbie, yes, good on you, that good Olympic spirit. That's what they'll be doing, I'm sure. And that's mm. what they I don't want the laundry bill. Anyway, on the same page, then you have – so. A whole newspapers and newspapers and newspapers dedicated to how to save money, the recession is coming, things are, without trying to sound too doom and gloom. But then we've got A-listers, European summer breaks, and there's a piece there. Essentially, whoever did this reporting was obviously bored, trawled through a whole bunch of A-lister Instagram accounts to see who's on holidays and places far flung. Mm. So, really? Have you not read the room? Anyway. Well, I mean, you know, contrasting with my uh, conversation with uh, the checkout operator talking about people having to put uh, healthy food back and live on chips and fizzy drink, 
I was on the East Coast at the weekend, and a friend of mine who has a building company was told by a businessman who lives close to him, asked, you know, did you apply for the East Coast Flood Relief Fund? He said, well, we didn't get flooded. He said, well, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. And uh, his mate had gotten 10 grand. So he filled out the very short form, which didn't require any detailing of how his revenues grown month on month, year on year. And he's actually doing quite nicely, thank you, out of the floods because people are having to rebuild. But he um, filled the form out and it asked, is this a Māori-owned business? To which he checked yes, because he is part Māori. And he got $17,000. Much to his surprise, later in the month, he got another $22,000. He doesn't need that money. And he... Uh, he was embarrassed you, telling me. That contrasts with the Esk Valley restaurant and event conference owner who has applied for the same fund and all he's received is $20,000. And he cannot, I mean, he, he can reopen, but he has to get work done in order to get people to be able to access his venue to open the business. And that, that's all he's been able to access. Spray and pray. And the infuriating thing is you know Robbo is not making decisions based on what's good for New Zealand. He's making decisions based on what's good to keep the Labour Party and the Greens in power, overseeing the decline of New Zealand. Yeah, it is really scary. So the last sort of entrench of stuff I had was also a piece in the Sunday Star Times this time around the new smoking uh, restrictions. Obviously, they're now aiming for the smoke three. I think it's um, smoke free New Zealand twenty. I think it was 2025, and they've now moved it out to 2030. But Sonny Kushal from the chair of the Dairy and Business Owners Group, he is expressing massive concern because, of course, now with everything that has gone on, these poor dairy owners, yeah. the poor dairy owners are like farmers, man. They're getting screwed six ways till Sunday. They really are. People out there need to realise and cherish the quintessential kiwi corner dairy which have been reducing in numbers steadily over the years you know what if you've got a dairy that you love you need to cherish that because the income streams that they have are slowly drying up i didn't realize kushal was saying it's going to be very hard for businesses to survive with these new restrictions how will they replace such a huge chunk up to 50 to 60 percent of their revenue and they're looking at removing uh, cigarettes and vaping products out of dairies and moving them specifically into places such as supermarkets and petrol stations. So, And then you throw the whole ram rate element. Now, I guess the government will say, oh, well, that will take away the threat of ram rating. Mm. Yeah, well, you've probably just killed the business, darling, so they're not going to be worrying about a ram rate, are they? Yeah, it's amazing how all the decisions uh, that have been taken globally through COVID in, in Western democracies have advantaged um, big BlackRock-owned corporates, crushed small to medium businesses. It's almost it's almost like that's what they're aiming to do. Mm, I know. It's, it is such a concern. It so is it, such a concern. Just with, with the themes, and we sort of carry on having a nibble at them, the... Uh, media waking up to the fact that over a decade New Zealand's birth rate uh, declined by a quarter. You know, so suddenly sort of, although they're still dancing around it, it's starting to at least address it. Favourite about the Greens, um, we smells the precious and we wants it kind of tax uh, policy. There's a bit to pick out there. Where do you want to start? 
You brought up in terms of the falling birth rate. Let's just start with what I think is the most ridiculous piece before we dive into the politicians. That's saying something. Uh, Ali Moore. Oh, Ali Moore. Ali Moore. Apparently, the reason the birth rate is dropping is we don't have a universal basic income. <sighs> what are the odds that the World Economic Forum are right? The headline on this, this is the opinion piece, Ali Moore, Want more babies? Give us a universal basic income first. Mm. She quoted um, Professor Paul Spoonley, at least in passing, laid that detail out a couple of years ago, noting the fall in birth rate has accelerated particularly rapidly in the past 10 years. In 2010, the birth rate was 2.17 children per birthing adult. It's now 1.6, a drop of 20% in a decade. I went back to that article and Paul Spoonley thinks it's, in my in his mind, it's simple. Um, the reasons for this are, in fact, reasonably obvious. Increase access for women to higher education and participation in the job market. So it doesn't sort of talk about xenoestrogens, which is, is an interesting uh, angle in terms of the people who want to have children and can't. It doesn't talk about the breakdown of family structures that mean I mean, I started work at 18, you know, started working with men. Coincidentally, that was the year New Zealand's divorce rate peaked. And so I had a lot of men just saying to me, don't get married, boy. Don't just go overseas, party, have a good time. This baby boomer nihilistic kind of uh, symptom of a civilization that's in decline. And, and so the fact that men have seen other men have their kids taken off them because their wife's just not happy and then has to pay for the house where the wife's with a new partner who may be earning more than him. Those sort of things haven't, I wasn't expecting Ali Mao to bring that up. In the political panel last week, actually Olivia brought up a really interesting point about Hungary and Viktor Orban, and he has a really interesting policy. Like They're very serious about the core family there and core family values. They're a very traditional conservative nation. I mean, of course, the progressives in most left-leaning socialist Western countries hate Viktor Orban, and they hate the fact that he's you know, the Hungarians keep voting and back election after election. And I think she brought up that one of the things that he does is that if you choose to stay at home as a tra a trad wife, which will get you a domestic terrorist label in this country, if you choose to do that in Hungary, you will get a tax break. Mm. Well, no, you pay no tax. No tax. Yeah, yeah, no tax for the rest of your life. So, you know, that to me makes far more sense than a universal basic mm. income. You know, and I think this this is something as a nation we've got to start talking about. We've got a whole generation of kids who are being told that the world's going to burn in ten years, and just being terrorised by these by these people again deliberately. They've basically been traumatised and so talked out of thinking long term. Just the evil of doing that to children mm. uh, horrifies me. There's a lot of evil that we're doing to children. One piece that I've heard a bit of talk about, but I didn't manage to catch because it was a paper that was sold out, was Bruce Cottrell's piece on the Herald on Saturday. Now, you did dig that out and said it was excellent. It, it was really excellent. I mean, you know, we sort of start that by talking about Green's uh, wealth tax and the Weekend Herald led with uh, an article that sounded like it was cobbled together with a little afterthought from from David Parker, who, of course, loves that French Marxist economist who's 
ideas for solving inequity are indistinguishable from Marxism. But um, yeah, the language in this article, the rich stash 470 billion in trusts. And in another place, you had James Shaw basically saying New Zealand's got enough wealth to solve child poverty as if it's his, as if it's public money. The language through this was the golden age of stashing vast sums of money in trusts or indeed anywhere, maybe over, with the Green Party set to unveil a wealth tax. Swarbrick says wealth in Aotearoa is concentrated in the back pockets of a wealthy few. It's time we got on and fixed this. Again, you know, when you've got that messianic complex where you think everything in my mind it's simple spoken by a young woman who has no other responsibilities other than her big bad self on a a very healthy six-figure income yeah and i I googled chloe swarbrick charity and tried to find how she'd unburdened herself of this terribly problematic wealth It's as hard as finding Ashley Bloomfield uh, giving a crap about the plummeting birth rate. It's just not there. Mm. It's for thee, not for me. I mean, you know, I read Lenin's speech urging the murder of the kulaks, and it's, it's the same meme. Ruthless war on the kulaks, death to them, hatred and contempt for the parties which defend them, the right socialist revolutionaries, the Mensheviks and today's left socialist revolutionaries, the workers must crush the revolts of the kulaks with an iron hand, the kulaks who are forming an alliance with the foreign capitalists against the working people of their own country. And of course, this resulted in the murder and starvation and rape of 20 million people. I read also an earlier profile on Chloe Swarbrick where she talked about her ADHD and how she'd read one page a hundred times and crushing depression, as you often find with people who are the most vocal on Facebook. You don't have to scroll down too far to find their battle with crushing depression. It's interesting, the the Labour Party candidate for Mount Albert, Helen White, you know, just like Willie Jackson said, there's not that much difference between us and the the Māori Party in terms of what we want to achieve. We're just sneakier about it. Her her word is pragmatism. White says the pragmatism of Labour is actually a selling point in Mount Albert. The Greens and Labour do have a lot of stuff in common. They haven't ruled out whether they're going to go with their wealth tax. No, but I think it will all depend on the collective, really, won't it? What the collective wants. Yeah, yeah. So, so getting back to Bruce Cotterell's column, which was one of the best I've read in some time. He uh, was headlined, Our Leaders in Need of Life Lessons. And I mean, I've highlighted two thirds of it, but, you know, he's talking about instead of pounding the pavement and selling yourself today, getting into parliament as an MP is easier. Instead of presenting your credentials to an electorate, you need only find favour with the comparatively small group of people who represent the hierarchy of your preferred political party. It's what former Australian Labour Party leader Mark Latham called the conga line of suckholes. Yeah, he says he's lost count of the number of people who tell me they're loving Wayne Brown. Yes, he's abrasive and not everyone's cup of tea, but my bet is that we'll be better off as a result of having him in the mayoral seat than we would have been without him. And my father worked with him on the Tarafiti District Health Board when he took it over and said he just had such a great grasp of numbers. It was incredible to work with and just didn't tolerate crap. But the, another quote, oh, he said, the new alternative 
is that you spend time at high school, possibly in the debating team, go on to university to study politics and thereafter work in the office of a senior MP. There you will wait until your chance at the big time arrives, either a safe electorate seat that you can stroll into, or better still, a place high up on the party list. Working in a minister's office might teach you about what has happened in politics in the past, but it doesn't prepare you for things you've never seen before, for the future only experience and perspective and judgment to do that. But the perpetuation of such an approach will continue to deliver politicians who see everything through a politically based, Wellington-centric and retrospective lens. As a result, the basis of decision-making becomes narrower and narrower. Amen, Bruce Cottrell. Mm, it is that whole beltway bubble, isn't it? He's just yeah, described I mean, it in an absolute Michael nutshell. Bassett said of Jacinda Ardern, you know, she's got no understanding of history and now she's the Prime Minister. It's too late for her to learn. Mm. In my mind, it's simple. Yeah. So much easier when in your mind it's simple. That piece was also followed up on the Herald on Sunday, an article talking about the Ask Me Anything, the podcast now hosted by Paula Bennett, and she interviewed former Prime Minister John Key, and he talked about the psyche of ambition. And that is certainly one of the things that I know you and I have talked about privately is about, you know, just how how do we instill ambition in our kids when they're told repeatedly the messages that they get wherever they look that being ambitious is negative it's evil you have to be part of the collective you can't be a strong individual especially if you're a man especially if oh, you're a man. yeah hello two boys i see it all the time i watched the arnold documentary on netflix the other day and growing up in the 80s arnold was an idol to my friends and i we used to bunk school to go to the gym and, uh, you know, he, he was talking about what a, a, an awful upbringing he had in many ways at the hands of you know, his father, who was a, a card-carrying Nazi when it was quite uh, rare in Austria. He was saying, look, you know, it, it was awful, but I couldn't have done what I did without it. That wanting to insulate kids and people generally from the consequences of their action results in, and I didn't cut this out, but it was only as I thought about it last uh, over the past couple of days that I realized it was related. Some um, millennial talking about the Gen Z culture of bed rotting, which is where you sit in your bed and do nothing. I just can't fathom it, you know, and this is one of those, I don't know how, whether you feel this, but when I hear about stuff like that, I think, oh my gosh, Marie, this is one of those, you know, you're getting older moments. It's, yeah, it is insane. Well, I tell my kids, look, I'm trying to give you the benefits of a tough childhood without so much of the trauma. So bear mm. with me. Now get up that hill. <laughs> well, in this piece, last this is a quote from Key. Last time I looked, we want people with ambition doing things, hiring people. That's a lot of what I tried to do when I was prime minister. I tried to build ambition, have New Zealand proud of the fact that we're a rock star economy and that we're punching above our weight and we're going to win. And it wasn't just the All Blacks and the like. It was the infamous changing of the flag. It's got nothing to do with the act what's actually on the flag. It was what we can find something that we can coalesce around that makes us feel good about being Kiwi and we're happy to show it in a way that Americans do and actually even frankly the Australians do or the Canadians do. So I think you can build a national psyche of ambition. I do worry that in the last little while that things are starting to seep away. Oh, that's uh, an understatement, isn't it? Isn't it, I, just? I, I thought his quote, he was talking about, I know what my taxes are and I know I was on that list because I was made to fill it out. And I know there's a hell of a lot of more wealthy people that are on that list that are a lot wealthier than me. 
but I know how much nominal tax I pay. And the answer is a truckload. When 2% of, and this is the key, this is a key data that is is always lost in this. When 2% of people are paying a quarter of all personal tax and 25% are paying, or 20% are paying about 70% of it, well, if that's not enough, what is enough? Yeah. This is the, we smells the precious and we want, want it. It's actually that, that whole, that expression, killing the goose that lays the golden egg. That's what these guys are doing. As, as I've said before, I'm certainly not wealthy. I know a lot of wealthy people. And as I've said, I'd rather have my problems. I know that they just don't get it handed to them. And then it comes at a cost. And I choose not to pay that cost. But that's okay because you could be bed rotting with a baby on your universal basic income. So stop complaining, Martin. <laughs> I want to uh, head over a little bit into sort of heading more into a kind of a cultural realm. And this, initially I hummed and hard about doing the story. It was one that I know three of us that chat about these matters talked about on the weekend. I am going to cover it only because it's still unfolding. Looking back and looking down on it, I think that there is a much, much bigger element in in terms of media. So what am I talking about? I'm talking about the Radio New Zealand staffer that's been stood down over uh, the alterations of Reuters stories. It is still evolving. Quick pricey, there's been around, I think they're now saying up to 15 stories. Reuters is an agency that sends out, uh, and so is Associated Press, that sends out news. If you are a news outlet in a country, you subscribe to it, you pick these stories up, and in most cases, they either reproduce it in its entirety, or they make subtle changes in order to have it fit with the market, or fit with what it is that you want to do. For example, if a story comes down and it's quite long, and it's for radio, you need to condense it down into a smaller format to fit what you're using. So this is all quite normal. It's gone on since time immemorial. The brouhaha is coming because it is believed that this journalist has changed stories to deliberately make them from pro-Ukrainian to pro-Russian. The one example that they have trotted out in the Example they've listed is the original story states the conflict in the eastern Ukraine began in 2014 after a pro-Russian president was toppled in Ukraine's maiden revolution, Maidan, Maidan, revolution, Maidan, Maidan revolution, and Russia annexed Crimea with the Russian-backed separatist forces fighting Ukraine's armed forces. That's what Reuters put out. There were alterations made, and this is what RNZ put out. The conflict in Ukraine began in 2014 after a pro-Russian elected government, true, was toppled during Ukraine's violent maiden colour revolution, true. Russia annexed Crimea after a referendum, also true, as the new pro-Western government suppressed ethnic Russians in eastern southern Ukraine, ascending its armed forces into the Donbass, also true. Mm. This is just completely blown up. I have no opinions about Russia and Ukraine whatsoever. As far as I'm concerned, there is bigger fish to fry here in my own backyard that I'm that I'm even worried about what's going on over there. I don't really want Vladimir pressing any red buttons and blowing us all up, to be fair. No, I'm not keen on that. But I don't have any particular opinion one way or t'other. What worries me about this is all the speculation around it. Like this this journalist has been stood down. 
is this another element of this overall censorship that is going on in journalism today? You've worked there. I mean, what's your opinion on this? Well, I mean, like climate, you can choose the starting point to suit your narrative. So if you choose a point, you, you can get warming in the climate. I think from, from memory, it's about 30 years ago. But, the, you know, at many other points, you've got a net cooler. If you want to present this is an illegal invasion, you have to kind of ignore what came before it as, as the journalist added in. I mean, I just keep reiterating, it's, it's, I've got an opinion on the Ukraine conflict. I'm no expert, but I'd like to have balanced coverage. And when I do see the sheepdogs barking to get the sheep back in the paddock, and most of them do run straight back there, I get very nervous and I, I uh, don't much like to see it. I think you're really right. And I uh, look, I'll be intrigued to see how this does unfold. I mean, I I don't know the journalist. Actually, the journalist is out there and they happen to be listening to this and they want to talk to us at RCR. Info at realitycheck.radio is the email, just saying. That was what I read what came out of the Herald on Sunday. The Sunday Star Times covered it a little bit more deeply. But what was interesting about their coverage, and it was the irony of the, their coverage that I loved, right? RNZ Chief Executive Paul Thompson confirmed yesterday he'd launched an external review of processes for editing online stories to ensure that these are robust. The staff member has been put on leave and no longer has access to the RNZ computer systems. Okay. They then got comment from a security analyst, Paul Buchanan, who said whilst it wasn't clear what exactly had happened, New Zealand has become a target for overseas disinformation in the last few years. Because of the pandemic and the government's highly successful response, Okay. Uh, New Zealand has been flooded by foreign disinformation and misinformation. New Zealand is a good target because if you can undermine the New Zealand liberal democracy, which is very progressive in the world's eyes, then you can do it for any democracy, he said. Much he says of this, that like it's a good thing, doesn't he? I know. Much of this propaganda is anti-LGBTQIA+. Um, I really don't know what this has got to do with a RNZ journalist altering stories on Ukraine, but let's push on, push on. It aims to fuel culture war politics, but Buchanan said some of the disinformation is on the war around Ukraine. Now, to quote somebody that people love to hate or hate to love, um, this is all smelling very Russia, Russia, Russia to me. Mm. Yeah, I'm with Trump. I just want people to stop dying. I just want I just want people to stop dying. There was some chatter on Al Jazeera, you know, pointing out quite rightly that uh, there was uh, not nearly so much hand wringing uh, when brown people were getting brutally murdered in much higher numbers and all sorts of illegal op occupations and invasions. And the people responsible for the lies that occasioned that aren't officially regarded as war criminals. Mm. So it'll be interesting to see really how this unfolds. The fact that they're now trying to whip this up. I mean, I literally did hear on another station this morning that they are claiming that this could be a targeted Russian disinformation campaign to hit New Zealand. Personally, I don't think it's anything of the sort. I've got it's a sneaking suspicion that this is actually a journalist who was trying to do their yeah. job. And it's a targeted foul. campaign against a journalist who's probably got a mortgage to make sure that uh, you stick to the script, please. And you've got to blow it all up around all of this other distraction 
because you don't want to look like you're censoring a journalist. I mean, that's my take on it, just from afar. Also, in the same paper, actually, in the Sunday Star Post, so I turned the page. <laughs> I turned the page. And then the next headline that hit me over the page from that one was annoying or dangerous. How should managers deal with extremists in the workplace? I nearly ran out a highlighter for this one, Marty. This is how this, this is by Jane. It is covered in yellow. This is by James Halpin, Sunday, Sunday Star Times. Companies in New Zealand are walking a difficult line with employees who use the workplace to promote conspiracy theories or extremist political views. And then it pretty much went downhill from there. Such cases raise complex questions about freedom of speech and the right to a safe working environment and the range of, em of employment experts told the Sunday Star Times there was no easy answer. So essentially, this entire piece is about, as a manager or an employer, how you navigate between someone's personally held views and opinions whether they be religious, political, ideological, or extremist, according to our friend James here, to how does this breach workplace safety? He says, for example, an employee who stridently supported Donald Trump could be just annoying, but vocal support in the workplace for the violent January 6th insurrection and storming of the US Capitol could be potentially harmful to the well-being and safety of other staff. Doesn't mention whether support for the Black Lives Matter burning cities down. Uh, the left but, can never go too far. James, give me an example. I mean, I'm an employer. You're you're an employer. Give me an example of how some bloke over the teacups in the smoko room talking about a political event that happened two and a half years ago, halfway around the world, is going to be harmful. Yeah. A, I mean, can we block. fire feminists for tanking New Zealand's birth rate? It is absolutely laughable. Absolutely laughable. But it's basically a preliminary to passing legislation for hate speech and, and so on. It's designed to be, yeah, an onto chamber to uh, limiting free speech. I think it's more sinister than that. I actually think that this is a precursor. What they're wanting to call for is to actually pass health and safety legislation within the workplace in order to curtail workers' behaviours whilst they're actually there. I, I really this does concern me. And I mean, the manager said the law was also unclear about what to do with an employee who was radicalising in plain view, or who had a profile outside of work that centred around extreme beliefs. I think there's a spectrum. Dismissal is at one end of the spectrum. There are also some who go down the rabbit hole, and we should try and pull them out of the rabbit hole. Just stamp out those last embers of ability to critically think that a left once 55% of kids can't read. Who gets to decide who spends any time in anybody's rabbit hole? You know it when you see it, as dearly as oh, No, in my mind, it's simple. <laughs> Tracy Watkins, you know, had a similar pearl clutching about a public meeting in Hamilton last week is a peek into the madness that awaits hundreds of conspiracists. Now that, Tracy, I, I don't want to have to give you lessons in language, but someone who talks about conspiracy isn't a conspiracist. They're pointing out conspiracy. A very different thing, Tracy. Took over the meeting claiming citizens' arrests of Hamilton's deputy mayor and other councillors. Elected representatives were booed off the stage and shouted down as cowards by a 400-strong mob. 
I guess a mob is what you get when you get 400 people who don't agree with the party line, that had earlier chanted that Jacinda Ardern was a witch, then took to the stage to deliver rambling conspiracy theories about urban planning. Yes, that's correct, urban planning. Now, what they're probably talking about there was Agenda 2030, the one that Jacinda Ardern had boasted to the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation in New York that all of New Zealand's legislation that their government was passing was now compliant with Agenda 230, even though I don't remember anything like that in New Zealand's media. Didn't bother to tell us and certainly didn't give us an option to vote on whether we wanted it or not. Oh, the urban design concept is supposed to promote sustainable and healthy living. Who could disagree with that? Mm. And it's all well and good until the restrictions start coming in. So that you Meanwhile. Know. Meanwhile. How many people who want an end to the ban on GM are swing voters, do you think? Oh, that's a really interesting question. National have come out with a couple of big things, isn't it? The GM thing and the whole yeah. Haywaka Ekanoa. Yeah. yeah. Mm, good question. I don't know. I don't think it's as many as they would like to. Is this the RMA all over again where um, I don't Judith know. Collins uh, campaigned as primarily on, uh, on uh, reforming the RMA? And you're like, well, how many swing voters had that as their ride or die topic. So instead of coming out with a crime policy, because let's face it, I mean, actually, Andrea Vance was saying that people were worried about the cost of housing and something else. And this is like, no, Andrea, everyone's worried about the cost of living and crime, darling. And yet, no one seems to be getting that memo. No, it was actually, um, there was a, a quote on Tuesday from uh, Lloyd Burr from News Hub uh, quoted, uh, it sounded like it was an offhand private remark to a farmer, quoted Luxon as saying, we have become a very negative, wet, whiny, inward-looking, oh, he's saying country, I thought he was talking about the National Party, Uh, inward-looking country and we have lost the plot and we have to get our mojo back, Luxon said to one farmer. You know, the, the thing that, again, with James Shaw flying all around the world begging for New Zealand's farming sector to be taxed, you never, ever, ever hear any journalist say that the reason New Zealand's agricultural emissions aren't taxed is because they were specifically exempted from the Paris Accord Agreement. Mm. Food production is specifically exempt. But the reason that they want New Zealand's agricultural emissions taxed is because it's such a high proportion of our emissions. So what should be a great advantage to us, because everyone's got to eat, they're trying to, again, dying to, to borrow tens of billions of dollars and set it on fire or throw it into a volcano as a sacrifice to the climate fairies. Andrea Vance said, climate change and affordable housing. Climate yeah. change and affordable housing, two of the great crises of our ages. Andrea, no. No, it's not. Well, I mean, and it shouldn't be. Despite the fact that they're walking this back in the run-up to the election, the reason for ending the ban on GM was climate change. So they want to genetically modify ryegrass. So, and goodness knows what this will do to, to cattle that are already. There's a big rush to give um, to give uh, RNA vaccines to animals as well, which, as we know, doesn't just stay in the shoulder; it goes right through the meat. Mm-hmm. They're having a bob each way, our national. Well, they are, and he's. I mean, he is trying to galvanise the support in farmers as he pulled out of Haywakarikanoa. But Vance says here, a farmer-led group formed to price greenhouse gas emissions. Andrea, Andrea, Andrea. No, no, this is a government. 
This is a government initiative to corral farmers and uh, have their, the government being the heading dog, to use the analogy you used before. If you want to know more about the Haywaker Kanoa, go back to my replays, people. Have a listen to the interview I did with Kerry Warsnop, which was about a month, a month six weeks ago. She talks about this. She is, it was a great interview. She's a Kiwi farmer. She is all over it. In fact, I'm going to get Kerry back ahead of all of this. But this is a reframing. I mean, this is gaslighting, pure and simple. He's pulled back on that genetic modification, and it does worry me because is he trying to do this in order to technology our way out of what he believes is going to be the problem when actually when you look at and you talk to people around this climate stuff and i know don and jess pre go they have an entire show dedicated to this as you said wherever you place the starting point mm. you can then paint the picture that you want from that point and the whole thing is just a it is just especially if you, you you always leave out the fact that once you start satellite measurements of temperature, all climate models overestimate warming by typically 100%. The models are all wrong. And we're still enduring all of these uh, headlines based on what a computer model says. And as we know, you can make a computer model say anything. Yeah, absolutely. But you can only get funding for a computer model that says one thing. And that's a good place to look. Yep, follow the money. Anything else on your list, my friend? I'm oh, interested to see National trying to claw back the sensitivity to negative emotion female vote by uh, Nicola Grigg, who is, I've never heard of her before, but she is National's uh, spokesman for women, I think. But she points out as a result of the COVID-19 lockdowns, and it's good to see her not saying as a result of COVID-19. It's another thing that uh, the media says that bothers me. It's the government's response to COVID-19. More than 50,000 women missed a mammogram, likewise the cervical smear test, with neither of those backlogs yet cleared. She might also be interested to know that for the third year in a row, New Zealand's breast cancer screening program has failed to meet its target of 70%. So they're doing their best, bless them. It's tough to know which way, uh, whether the ladies are starting to wake up if they've got kids and they're realising what a horrible future they're gifting their kids as a result of their terrible voting decisions. Women have got a lot, a lot to consider, I think, this coming election. Well, I've got a little cheery story I thought I'd finish on. Oh, that's good, because I don't. Yes, when I have, I have. The Children of the Jungle, and this, of course, if you haven't caught up with it over the weekend, are the four Indigenous children who survived in the Amazon after a plane crash that killed three adults, including their mother. The siblings, aged 13, 9 and 4, as well as an 11-month-old baby, managed to survive on their own for so long, though they belong to an Indigenous group that lives in the remote area. The crash happened early in the, in the early hours of May 1st, and they have been out in that jungle for 40 days. 40 days. A 13-year-old, a 9-year-old, a 4-year-old, and an 11-month-old. 40 days in the jungle by themselves. The search team found the plane in a thick patch of rainforest, recovered the bodies and all three adult, of all three adults on board, but the small children were nowhere to be found. Sensing they could be alive, Colombia's army stepped up the hunt and flew in 150 soldiers with dogs into the area. Dozens of volunteers from the indigenous tribes also helped with the search. The children were travelling with their mother from an Amazonian village to another when the plane crashed. They saw evidence that they thought that the children would still be alive. The jungle saved them, they said. The children are of the jungle, and they are also now the children of Colombia. 
Now, this is an incredible story of survival. Mm. And tragedy, because it would have been, imagine seeing the mum dead and gosh. And apparently the mother, she did initially survive the crash before she passed. Yeah, and and, and spoke to the children before they passed. But it just shows you the resilience of these children. I tell you what, there will be no four Kiwi children out in the Kiwi bush that would have been able to survive that. No bed rotting for those kids. No, but it's great. I mean, that is a wonderful story out of Colombia and uh, just shows you actually the resilience of the human spirit. So well done to them. Thank you very much, as always. And there will be plenty more to talk about. Uh, you will be appearing again on the political panel on Friday. Yes. So you'll be able to dig up more political stories of the day. And of course, if you've got anything that you want to hear Marty and I cover or any questions, we got lots or of disagreements. Feedback, or disagreements. Yes. And we got lots of feedback last week, actually. It was really great to hear. So thank you. Keep that feedback coming. Inbox at realitycheck.radio or 2057 is the text number. Don't disappear. The woke word of the week is still yet to come here on Counterculture here on RCR. Have a great week, everyone. It's time for the Vocabulary Word of the Week. The Woke Word of the Week is where we take a look at words, phrases and language that make up the lexicon often deployed by those in critical social justice. And today's Word of the Week, diversity. The classic definition, the state of being diverse, variety. But when used by those steeped in critical social justice, diversity means the practice or quality of including or involving people from a range of different social and ethnic backgrounds and of different genders, sexual orientations, often to the exclusion of one specific group, white, heterosexual, cisgender individuals. Diversity is now far from diverse. Critical social justice diversity now comes with a quite prescribed boundary which excludes anyone who dares to exercise a diversity of thought, diversity of political opinion and diversity of classical theology. Diversity is now the tool to drive division and indoctrination. So handle diversity with care, especially in the workplace where questioning diversity can end up in dismissal. Thank you for joining me this week for another dose of counterculture and keep your feedback coming to inbox at realitycheck.radio or drop us a text, send your comments to 2057. That number again, 2057. Peter Williams is up here next on RCR with his ponderings and even more great music. You can't end a sweet and short music theme without probably the greatest two and a half minute song of all time. Written by Otis Redding, but rearranged and immortalised by the great Aretha Franklin. Turn the volume up, people. This is Respect.